The business meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Um, we have nine members we need, well, now we have 10 members. We need 12 to vote, so we'll start off, and then hopefully by the time we're finished our remarks, uh, there'll be a, the ability to vote, and we'll be looking to make a motion to vote in block, which we've uh, talked to and have an agreement with a ranking member about. Uh, I'm pleased that the committee has gathered today for our first legislative business meeting of the 117th Congress. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee must be in the lead as we respond to the unprecedented foreign policy crises of our time, restore America's role in the world, and reaffirm our core values of democracy and human rights. Today we take a first step on that agenda as we mark up 15 bipartisan bills and resolutions, including legislation reaffirming our alliances around the world, supporting democracy in Cuba and Venezuela, and, undress, and addressing ongoing challenges in Syria, Ethiopia, and elsewhere. I plan to hold regular legislative business meetings and hope that each of you will join the ranking member and me as we create a robust bipartisan agenda for the committee. And I look forward to working with each of you on your legislative priorities. Before I speak briefly about the items on their agenda, there are two items that will no longer be considered today. I received a request to hold over S-413, the China Censorship Act, and I will be holding over S-814, the Ukraine Security and Partnership Act. Both are solid pieces of legislation. I commend Senators Merkley and Risch, respectively, on their work, and I look forward to taking up both bills after the recess. For members' awareness and maybe to call attention to the rules, I opted to hold over the Ukraine bill despite my strong support and co-sponsorship. I did so in light of a late-breaking request yesterday evening to rewrite and submit a previously filed first-degree amendment. Uh, that would have been out of the rules. And the reason we have those rules is so that all members understand what they're voting on and have an opportunity to understand what amendments are coming their way so they can make an informed judgment on them. I strongly support senators' rights to offer amendments but it's also imperative that all of you have the time to consider amendments before you vote on them. So I plan to take up the Ukraine bill at the next business meeting in the near future, and senators will once again have an opportunity to submit amendments. While we have a robust agenda today, I'd like to comment on a few specific legislative items, starting with the Trans-Sahel bill, which I co-authored with the ranking member, and I thank him for his partnership on this critical piece of legislation. As we restore America's role in the world and protect our national security interests, we have to refocus on the Sahel where we are on the verge of losing the region to terrorism. Last year, there was a 44% increase in violent attacks attributed to militant Islamist groups in the Sahel, with a 57% increase in the deaths attributable to those attacks. That's why this bipartisan bill authorizes a new Trans-Sahara Counterterrorism Partnership to build capacity in the Sahel to combat terrorism and terrorist ideology. As we all learned on September 11th, we have to take on terrorism abroad so we don't have to fight it here at home. I'm also pleased that our agenda contains numerous resolutions reaffirming our democratic values and standing up for human rights around the world. As we will discuss shortly at our hearing, democracy is under threat in our own hemisphere, and that's why I've worked with my friend and colleague Senator Rubio on a Venezuela resolution and two Cuba resolutions. In November of 2020, the world saw a renewed wave of activism in Cuba as a diverse group uh, of artists from the San Isidro movement sparked a wave of protests against restrictions on freedom of expression. Their efforts built on more than 15 years of peaceful activism by Cuba's ladies in white 
who have faced years of repression. Our two resolutions express our support for Cuban activists and human rights defenders and document the Cuban regime's persecution of civil society leaders. Senator Rubio and I also authored a resolution denouncing the Maduro regime's fraudulent legislative elections in Venezuela, something that has been recognized as fraudulent internationally, expressing concerns about crimes against humanity and calling for a renewed multilateral response to the Venezuela crisis. Unfortunately, Latin America is not the only region in the world where democracy is under threat, and our agenda includes resolutions supporting democratic movements in Syria, Burma, and Ethiopia. I've also introduced other items on the agenda that provide hope for democratic progress and peace, including resolutions recognizing the 200th anniversary of the independence of Greece and expressing support for the full implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. In similar vein, I also note the resolution that Senator Risch and I co-sponsored on the importance of U.S. alliances and partnership. Finally, as everyone is aware, Senator Risch and I are working together to write a bipartisan China bill with the goal of providing the text to everyone on the committee in the next few days. We intend to work with each of you to ensure that your China priorities are included in this text, which we will mark up the week of April 12th. Let me close by noting again how pleased I am at the promising bipartisan effort that produced today's agenda. I look forward to considering and moving similar lists to the 117th Congress. And with that, I recognize the distinguished ranking member, Senator Rich, for his remarks. Well, thank you very much, uh, Senator Menendez. Um, first of all, let me say, and uh, I, I certainly don't want to step on bar, uh, partisan toes here, I was disappointed that the that A14 Ukrainian Security uh, Partnership Act is being held over. I understand that uh, Senator Cruz has uh, veiled himself of the traditions that we have of of uh, making some changes to this. Um, th this Nord Stream 2 issue we've dealt with over and over again, and I, 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 I think we're all committed to try to get this thing done. And this wouldn't be so bad if we weren't facing a two-week um, break here. Uh, so that, that's an issue. But, but nonetheless, uh, I understand that what the, the rules are such that uh, this can be done, and uh, it is what it is, I guess, at this point. I hope you would. I, I understand you've recently written the administration, uh, you and Senator Shaheen, uh, myself and Senator Cruz did. The letters may have had a slightly different tone, but uh, the objective was the same, and, uh, and I hope we'll all uh, uh, try to continue down that road. Because, again, time is running out. It's just flat running out on us, and this is... This is something that uh, that we've all worked so hard on. So I also appreciate the work Senator Menendez and I did to introduce Senate Resolution 122, a resolution that reaffirms the Senate's support for U.S. defense treaty commitments to allies in the Indo-Pacific and Europe. In today's challenging security environment, it's critical that the U.S. sustains its extended deterrence policies and that both the U.S. and its allies make substantial con uh, contributions to addressing shared threats. I want to thank Senator Cardin and seven other members uh, of this committee for participating with me on Senate Res 97. The conflict in uh, Ethiopia's Tigray region and elsewhere in, in the country is deeply concerning. And uh, I know virtually everyone on this committee is on board with that. While Ethiopia's transition faces significant challenges, uh, passing this resolution will send an important bipartisan signal to Ethiopia, our allies, and our own uh, government uh, that the withdrawal of Eritrean forces, the cessation of hostilities, and getting Ethiopia back on track to achieve a once-in-a-generation democratic transition are priorities for the U.S. Senate. Uh, in Syria, I'm um, uh, happy to join Sen uh, Chairman Menendez in sponsoring Senate Res. 99, a resolution marking the 10th anniversary of the Syrian conflict. This resolution reaffirms our support for the Syrian people 
emphasizes the policy of the United States to seek a political solution to this prolonged, difficult conflict and highlights the need for accountability for all of the crimes committed by Assad and his Russian and Iranian backers. Senate Resolution 120 is also on the agenda. This resolution emphasizes that we have a great opportunity as the U.S. hosts the Ninth Summit of the Americas to reaffirm our commitment to a region uh, to be safe, democratic, and prosperous. I'm glad to join Senator, or excuse me, Chairman Menendez in co-sponsoring Senate uh, 615, the Trans-Sahara Counterterrorism Partnership Program Act. This bill will give Congress greater oversight of TSCTP programs. This is especially important given that a recent Department Inspector General audit found uh, potential waste due to poor management of these funds. I couldn't have said it any better than Chairman Menendez did about the uh, area and the problems that are occurring there. Senate Res 22 highlights the progress Ecuador has made in promoting democratic values and improving economic and security conditions. Our two countries should take additional steps to deepen our economic relationship and tackle shared challenges such as transnational crime and the regional instability provoked by the Maduro regime in Venezuela. I also want to recognize the work our teams, ours being uh, the both Republican Sem- uh, and Senate uh, teams, um, my staff, the, uh, the chairman's staff, in working on the China resolution. This has been a long time coming. Fortunately, there's a lot of work that's been done before we got here. I, I do wish, as I've talked with the chairman about this, that we had more time to work on this. I think, uh, uh, obviously, we... We wind up dragging our feet around here a lot of times on things that we shouldn't. On the other hand, uh, it's important that we we do get this right when we're doing something particularly as as big as as China is. But there are urgent uh, problems, and uh, I want to do everything I can to assist in moving this forward. Any China legislation that passes out of this committee needs to be truly bipartisan, and uh, uh, we on this side are committed to that. That means it needs to include numerous ideas and proposals from both sides of the aisle. It needs to be strong, concrete, and actionable. Anything short of this will send the wrong message to our allies and our adversaries in the region. Finally, it uh, it must address uh, the full array of challenges China poses. Political influence in the United States is one of those challenges. We are all aware the Chinese government uh, seeks undue influence in our universities, wants to influence how our government makes decisions, and has no qualms about coercing uh, our, our private sector. I'm always amazed when I hear the statistic, and these are very round numbers, that we have about 300,000 Chinese students studying here in America at American universities, many of them uh, taking graduate studies in programs that are very sensitive uh, on national matters. The reverse of that is there are 12,000 American students studying in China compared to the 300,000 that are studying here. We know that the Chinese government seeks to steal the best of American innovation. They always have. If we are going to invest more in R&D in the United States, we have to make sure we are protecting the results. This is the point. If we don't have anything strong and actionable on political influence, we're missing a big slice of the problem. I expect the final product to be represented. And on that issue, the chairman and I had some discussions on that yesterday, and I think we came up with some uh, productive ideas uh, to to move forward. Um, I expect the final product to be representative of both sides of the aisle. I continue to work with uh, Chairman Menendez towards this goal and hope we can reach agreement on all of these issues. With that, I'll yield back. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Thank you, Senator Risch, and we do look forward to working uh, together on a China bill. It's incredibly important for to speak with one voice as much as we can. Is there any member who wants to be recognized on uh, any of the items on the agenda? 
Senator Coons, who recently came back from a mission uh, to Ethiopia, uh, which sounds like we've had some success. Senator Coons. Um, thank you. Uh, Chairman Menendez, uh, Ranking Member Risch, I'm so encouraged uh, to hear um, your bipartisan work on the China bill um, and that we are considering more than a dozen pieces of legislation on a bipartisan basis, which I think is setting a very positive tone for this committee. Um, for those watching, I'll just comment that there are resolutions um, all across our agenda today uh, that are designed to promote democracy and our core values uh, in our relations uh, towards Venezuela, Cuba, Syria, Burma, uh, and as well Ethiopia. And I want to thank um, uh, Senator Cardin and Ranking Member Risch for your leadership on this resolution. Uh, as was mentioned, I just returned uh, from a weekend spent as President Biden's personal emissary meeting with Prime Minister Abe and a whole range of senior Ethiopian officials and others in the international community. Um, and I want to thank you for allowing changes to the resolution to recognize that trip, which I believe was constructive. I just want to note uh, that there have already been some positive public statements by Prime Minister Abe in the last 24 hours. Um, recognizing the need for accountability for human rights violations, the first public acknowledgement of the presence of Eritrean troops, and just within the last few hours, uh, positive statements about the possible resolution of the border dispute with Sudan and the path forward uh, on the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. There are other issues that we must address, full humanitarian access, the cessation of hostilities, the path towards free and fair elections. I look forward um, to working with each of you on these issues and hopefully uh, to there being more progress. Um, so thank you. There are a number of other important items on today's agenda. I'll just briefly thank Senator Portman for his partnership in the Tropical Forest and Coral Reef Conservation Restoration Act uh, and a number of other items uh, like the uh, anniversary of the U.S. Uh, African Development Foundation. Um, thank you for the opportunity to work with all of you on a bipartisan basis, and I'm hopeful we can make progress in addressing uh, the challenging situation in Tigray and Ethiopia. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you for your good work, Senator Kuhn. Senator Portman. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, Senator Kuhn, thank you for your work on the Tropical Forest Act. Uh, that's in this package of bills, and I appreciate your including, Mr. Chairman, and the ranking member. Uh, this is legislation that is actually working to reduce CO2, to help developing countries, and with a great bang for the buck for the American taxpayer. About $118 million of private sector funding has been leveraged through these debt for nature swaps, groups like the Nature Conservancy, Conservation International, World Wildlife Fund, and so on. Uh, total amount is about $300 million bucks over the last 15 years. And it has saved, uh, according to the analysis we have, about 67 million acres of tropical forest from being burned. As you know, tropical forest burning is one of the major causes of CO2 emissions. Uh, in fact, after uh, automobiles and other transportation and factories, uh, it's probably number three or, or number four. And this legislation, by saving about 67 million acres, has generated uh, significant uh, carbon dioxide sequestration, 60 uh, million metric tons is the estimate, equivalent of taking about 11.8 million cars off the road. So to my way of thinking, this is a good way for us to proceed on issues like this. We haven't lost a single American job through this legislation. In fact, uh, we've helped developing countries by improving their balance sheet through these debt for nature swaps. Uh, so I thank you very much for including it. I will say the administration is interested right now in agreements with two Latin American countries and one Southeast Asian country. So this is timely. We need uh, to have the authorization, <coughs> and uh, I hope this can be an example of what we can do together on a bipartisan basis to focus on these issues. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, and thank you for your good work. Uh, Senator Paul. Uh, 
Thank you. I will oppose uh, Senate Bill 615 to establish an interagency program in North Africa and West Africa. The bill states uh, rather blandly and without proof that it is in our national security interest uh, to be involved in Africa to the extent that we will be appropriating resources, we will be um, checking uh, violent extremism, we will even be monitoring media. Um, we have trouble even monitoring violent extremism in media in our own country, much less in Africa. It also says we're going to enhance border security. It seems like we've got our own sort of border problems we might want to pay attention to before we decide that we're going to take care of the border problems in Africa. I think it's an open-ended question, though, whether or not this involvement, this degree of involvement in Africa is in our national security interests. I think this is an unproven assertion. I think the burden should be on those who want to get more involved in Africa to prove, one, that it works, our involvement in the past, and two, that the violent extremists there are a threat to our U.S. national security. Others might argue that our involvement in Africa actually becomes a tripwire to expanding war and to expanding involvement in these areas. The concern I have about this bill is that we presume that we have solutions to a complex interrelated series of regional conflicts and long-held rivalries, some of which go back decades and longer. With this bill, we are formally committing to solve these complicated problems in North and West Africa, but we haven't really demonstrated that we know the answers or understand the nature of what is happening there. Well, there are Boko Haram and ISIS sympathizers and splinter fighter groups who pose regional threats. You also have disputes over land and water. You have farmers and livestock herders clashing. Two years ago, we lost four soldiers in Niger who were chasing a goat herder. Was that a vital interest in Niger that sent these brave young men to their deaths? Should anybody ask these questions? Why we were chasing this goat herder? Was this goat herder a threat to our national security? You have transitional governments that come and go. You have pockets of ungoverned territory surrounded by more stable territory. You have armed counterterrorism groups acting in self-defense. Can we presume to know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are in these religious disputes and territorial disputes? The French have been there, the Europeans have been there, now we're there. The complicated warfare, the complicated clan warfare of Somalia is often the norm in Africa. In Somalia, you have al-Shabaab, but you also have factions like Puntland, Jubaland, the Gaumudug, the popular resistance movement, and the transitional federal government. They control different parts of the country, assert different levels of autonomy, but also come from overlapping tribes, clans, and subclans such as Hawiye, Rahanwe, Habar Gedir. Some of the factions consist of only one tribe, and other factions are made up of many tribes and clans. Can we really presume to know who is best to rule Somalia and that we have the answers for Somalia? You would think after the disaster that was Mogadishu, the United States would have learned its lesson there, too. But no, we're still there with with U.S. soldiers 20 years ago, 20 years later. This bill doesn't specifically apply to Somalia, but it's the same sort of story throughout Africa. Messy wars, messy clan warfare, messy tribes, where I don't know that we can really presume to know what's best. I think we're kidding ourselves if the United States presumes to know which faction supports the ideals of a Western republic. To reduce these complicated histories in the region to a matter of eliminating terrorism, oversimplifies the nature of the problems there. But it also obscures the fact that many of these groups pose no immediate threat to Americans here at home. We have a significant military presence in Africa. A recent report says we have 6,000 troops in Africa. 
No one's given an authorization for use of force. And I do appreciate that an amendment I offered will be included in this to make clear that this bill does not authorize the use of force. However, there's a whole lot of references to their military, our military, and support, and you can see how it quickly morphs into any administration that wants to use military force will point to this as support for whatever they choose to do. I think we need to go further in trying to not eliminate or dumb this down to two solutions, that we have to fight everywhere or otherwise terrorists will overrun us. I think it's a false choice. It's a justification for perpetual war. It is precisely that mindset that keeps us bogged down in Afghanistan. I mean, this talks about, uh, you know, making sure girls get an education and things like this. Admirable qualities, but are we really going to send our soldiers into every country in the world to make sure that girls get an education? Is it feasible? Is it possible? Is it something we should be asking our soldiers to do? I think it's time that uh, we understand that the idea that we can eradicate an ideology or pacify a populace full of discontent is foolhardy and naive at best. Thank you. Um, I thank the, the, the senator. I, I, I am glad he recognized that we included his amendments. That makes it clear that nothing in this legislation is to be considered an authorization for the use of military force. And I know that you focus most of your comments in the context of potential military operations. That's, that is not the purpose. The purpose of this is actually to create a framework and a partnership that avoids conflict. But let's be, you know, uh, blunt. 7,000 people were killed by terrorists in the Sahel last year alone. More than 2 million people have been internally displaced. Another 800,000 are refugees in neighboring countries. Um, uh, it may seem a long, far uh, place away, but the reality is, is that these types of challenges, unabated, uh, will ultimately end up as real national interest and security questions for the United States. So what the Senator Risch and I have done, and this is building also on Congressman McCall, where, which passed this legislation, we passed this legislation uh, in, the, in the last Congress, are doing is to create a framework where between our efforts on USAID and diplomacy and democracy and governance issues um, and health issues that we can hopefully avoid the conflict so none of our sons and daughters have to go. I appreciate the senator's real concern in that regard. And I would just simply say, but this is, I see the legislation as avoiding that, that possibility. Can I ask one quick question? Sure. The, um, you know, in Morocco, they've had the dispute forever from the territory that is not Morocco is Morocco. We've now recognized that as being part of Morocco. That's in North and West Africa. Are we going to, you know, presume to know the answers of their border disputes, you know, if we're going to be involved with border sure. disputes in that area? Yeah, I, I don't think that that is the, the purpose of the legislation, to be defining border disputes. The previous administration, as you rightly recognize, uh, recognized what is, in some minds, the disputed area in Morocco as part of the Kingdom of Morocco, uh, and it made that decision. Um, so uh, I, my perspective is just simply that what we are trying to do is create a framework uh, and a strategy that hopefully avoids what the gentleman is concerned about so that we don't have military operations. Um, Senator Rich. Yeah, well, Mr. Chairman, I, uh, first of all, Senator Paul, uh, I think, uh, states in uh, very colorful language uh, w what the situation is in many parts of Africa. And, and it's difficult, to say the least. Uh, it certainly creates challenges that are, uh, that are stunning. Uh, the, the Moroccan uh, uh, 
Western Sahara issue certainly is a poster child for that, having gone on for as long as it's gone on since independence. I, I, it is not the intent of this legislation to drag us into that particular dispute, and for the many, many other disputes, as tribal disputes, as the, as the senator uh, described. Having said that, uh, I think we all know with the size of the globe as it is today, which is shrinking dramatically, things that uh, happen other places spill over quickly uh, to involve us or, or allies. The result is this legislation, which, as the chairman correctly states, is designed to set a framework to as much as anything monitor very closely what's happening and determine what our national security interests are, if any, uh, in any of these disputes. So in that regard, I, I think it's a, it's a step forward in, the, in that direction. In addition to that, this is a part of the world where uh, our allies are stepping up uh, when uh, – uh, when they should and in the uh, in the Sahel uh, France has been notoriously uh, uh, active in that regard for a lot of colonial long-term historical reasons and more power to them I mean I don't I we certainly uh, want to encourage them to continue to do that but in any event I, I think this is a good piece of legislation that sets up framework and uh, I, I wouldn't subscribe to anything that would drag us into uh, uh, conflicts that uh, that we don't have any business uh, being in. So with that, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Is there any other, excuse me, is there any other member who wishes to address any of the resolutions on the agenda? If not, uh, I would ask that we now consider the 15 bills and resolutions on the agenda en bloc as amended by the following notice amendments. S615 as amended by the manager's amendment, S335, S resolution 22, S res 37 as amended by the preamble and resolving clause amendments, S res 44, S res 81, S res 120 as amended by the manager's preamble amendment, S res 34, S res 117 as amended by the substitute amendment and the manager's preamble amendment. S res 35 as amended by the manager's preamble and manager's substitute amendments. S res 36 as amended by the preamble and substitute amendments. S res 99. S res 97 as amended by the title amendment, the manager's preamble and manager's resolving clause amendments. S res 114. S res 122 as amended by the manager's preamble amendment and manager's resolving clause amendment. Mr. Chairman. Senator uh, I'm, I'm not objecting, but I would request that uh, I, I have some requests from members as far as being able to get on the record as a no vote uh, on individual uh, items on that. And we will, and we will observe you. those. Yes. Is there a motion to move it in block? So moved by Senator Kane. Is there a second? Second. Se moved by Senator Coons. Um, all those in favor will say aye. 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 All those opposed will say nay. The ayes have it, and, and we will have... Uh, I'm Can you sorry. record me as a no on 615? Yes, Senator Paul will be recorded as a no on SRS 615. Mr. Chairman, uh, Senator Rounds has requested to be recorded as voting no on Senate Res 97, please. Senator Rounds will so be recorded. Is there any such other request? Uh, Mr. Senator Chairman, Barraza? please to be recorded as a no on S335, Tropical Forest and Coral Reef. Senator Barrasso will be so recorded. Is there any other requests? If not, um, can you record me as a no on the 335 as well? And uh, Senator Paul will also be uh, a no on 335. Um, with that, 
I believe that uh, our business for the business our business for the business meeting is finished. With the thanks of the chair, uh, this meeting is adjourned, and we will uh, then move towards the hearing on democracy in Latin America. You will never get a better bang for the buck. Mm, it's virtual right now. Okay. But some people have switched to virtual. Obviously. Okay. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on the State of Democracy in Latin America and the Caribbean will now uh, commence. Today, we continue our series on the state of democracy in the world with a focus on the Americas. This year, we will celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Inter-American Democratic Charter, the groundbreaking manifestation of consensus in our hemisphere that, quote, the peoples of the Americas have a right to democracy and their governments have an obligation to promote and defend it. Over the past two decades, we and our neighbors have endeavored to deepen our commitment to democratic governance, even as significant backsliding has occurred. Indeed, we in this very chamber are all too aware, as the fencing comes down around the Capitol complex this week, that democracy can be fragile and requires vigilance. Autocrats and populists alike have borrowed tactics from the same playbook, dismantling constitutional checks on power, attacking a free press, closing space for civil society, and using disinformation to sow discord and undermine citizens' trust in government. Although I'm painfully aware of challenges to U.S. democracy following the same exact playbook, including the January 6th assault on Congress, I firmly believe that the United States has to continue to fervently advocate for democracy promotion in the world and in our hemisphere. Our unwavering efforts to form a more perfect union and continuously improve our democratic institutions and processes is not only one of our greatest strengths, it is one of the greatest assets we can share with our partners. While we know from diplomats and activists that President Trump's actions make it harder to champion democracy and human rights in our hemisphere, we must not falter. The cost of an action is too great. There was a time when Cuba was the only remaining dictatorship in the Americas. However, with assistance from Havana, we have seen the rise of a criminal dictatorship in Caracas that poses risk to regional stability and U.S. national security. The Maduro's regime's unbridled kleptocracy and criminality has fueled the humanitarian crisis that has forced over 5 million Venezuelans to flee their country. And there is growing evidence that the Maduro regime has committed crimes against humanity. It is time for the United States to lead a coordinated multilateral response that has been lacking in the last several years. Over the last half decade, we have seen deeply flawed and fraudulent electoral processes across the Americas. Whether it was Nicaragua in 2016, Honduras in 2017, Bolivia in 2018, Guyana in 2020, or Venezuela in 2017, 18, and 20, each electoral crisis metastasized into a larger political crisis that shook the foundation of constitutional order in the country. We cannot allow this trend to continue. We must advance new initiatives to ensure the integrity of elections in the Americas. This includes ensuring that all people have the right and access to vote in free and fair elections. Beyond the challenges to elections, the deterioration of democratic governance in several countries 
has perpetuated a growing culture of impunity in which public officials place their personal interests and in some cases criminal interests over those of their own citizens. In Central America, citizens see no future in their countries. They see limited social programs gutted by corruption. They experience the absence of accountability. They watch as some government officials shirk their duty to ensure public safety and instead use public office to protect the violent criminals and drug traffickers that spread the very instability that fuels their poverty and hopelessness. And when the United States fails to prioritize human rights, good governance, and accountability as we engage with our neighbors, Americans are very directly confronted with the consequences. I believe that we must restore our commitment to promoting democracy as a central objective of U.S. foreign policy, not just because it is right, but because it directly contributes to the security and prosperity of all Americans. And we must be clear-eyed about the cost of inaction. Russia has expanded its support for authoritarian leaders in Venezuela and Cuba. China has started exporting its invasive citizen surveillance systems to the Americas alongside its efforts to use economic influence for political gains. With the 20th anniversary of the Inter-American Democratic Charter upon us and the United States scheduled to host regional leaders for the Summit of the Americas this year, it is a perfect occasion to develop a renewed hemispheric agenda. We have a unique opportunity to reaffirm consensus for the Charter's core message, quote, that democracy is essential for the social, political, and economic development of the Americas. With that, let me turn to the ranking member for his remarks. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Nearly uh, 20 years ago, the members of the Organization of American States made a commitment to the uh, Inter-American Democratic uh, Charter to promote and defend democracy as a right of every citizen in our region. The peoples of the Americas have made great strides towards democratic governance. Today, nearly 90% of the governments in Latin America and the Caribbean are considered democracies. Still, as then uh, Governor Reagan reminded us, uh, quote, freedom is a fragile thing and is never more than one generation away from extinction. Widespread, uh, end quote, widespread dissatisfaction with corruption and weak governance can lead to undemocratic and even despotic rulers. It's disheartening how quickly something like that can happen, even with just one or two leaders who are not committed to the rule of law and democracy. We do not have to look very far for examples. Within a generation, Hugo Chavez, Nicolas Maduro turned Venezuela from what it was, uh, a democracy, into a failed state. Cuba and Nicaragua went through their own awful descents into authoritarianism several decades ago. These regimes have some of the world's worst human rights records and certainly the worst in the Americas. They draw lessons from one another to sharpen state-sponsored repression, and they receive the support of malign state and non-state actors. This poses a unique challenge to the peace and stability of our hemisphere. Uh, these three outlier countries should be a warning sign in the hemisphere. A series of flawed elections and attempts at undermining electoral process in Haiti, Honduras, Bolivia, and uh, Guyana, endemic corruption, and the growing nexus between criminal organizations and government officials or institutions present serious threats to democracy in our region. The con consolidation of uh, power by a highly popular leader with authoritarian tendencies requires the strengthening of independent judiciaries, 
robust civil society, and independent media to provide the necessary checks on power. Equally concerning is the negative effect of malign state actors such as China, Russia, and Iran. While China has leveraged predatory lending practices throughout the region, they have provided a critical direct financial lifeline to the authoritarian regimes in Venezuela and Cuba, which has helped the regime secure their economic position and maintain control. Further, the adoption of Chinese technologies developed and controlled by companies vulnerable to pressure by the Chinese Communist Party can be formidable, uh, it can be a formidable threat to privacy and to human rights. Russia has exported repressive laws and tendencies to its allies in the region, which in turn have allowed authoritarian leaders to crack down and repress independent media, civil society, and political opposition. The United States has an enduring interest in a prosperous and stable Western Hemisphere, and democratic institutions are the best guarantors of prosperity and stability. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses on how we may be able to support those that seek to secure democratic governance for current and future generations in Latin America and the Caribbean. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. It's now my privilege to welcome back to the Foreign Relations Committee the distinguished Secretary General of the Organization of American States, our hemisphere's preeminent multilateral body. First elected in 2015 and re-elected in 2020, Secretary General Almagro has been a tireless champion of democracy and human rights in the Americas. He has been an outspoken advocate on the need to restore democracy in Venezuela and has led efforts to investigate the Maduro's regime's involvement in crimes against humanity. Secretary General Almagro has facilitated numerous election observation missions in the hemisphere and has been outspoken about violations of election integrity and incidents of electoral fraud. Prior to serving as OAS Secretary General, he served as Uruguay's Foreign Minister from 2010 to 2015, and I can think of no individual better positioned to speak to the need to reinforce democratic consensus in the Americas and strengthen collective action to uphold the ideals of the Inter-American Democratic Charter. Mr. Secretary General, the floor is yours. We'll include your full statement for the record, and we ask you to summarize it so that we can then have a conversation with you. Mr. Secretary General. Thank you very much, Senator Menendez, Senator Rich, members of the committee. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the Inter-American Democratic Charter, our veritable constitution of the Americas. It is unique in its creation because it is the first document of its kind to define democracy and enshrine it as a right for the people of the Americas, for all the people of the Americas. Member States created a strong mechanism to alter our hemisphere collective commitment to the promotion and defense of democracy. It also introduced the scenario that had proven to be the main threat to modern democracies worldwide, when the threat to democracy comes from the government itself. With unanimous approval, the Democratic Charter not only established clear obligations for the exercise of democracy within a framework of law, but also created the tools and authorities for its promotion and enforcement. It is a tool that is available to us and that we, one that we active, actively use. It has been invoked in cases where there has been an overt interruption of the democratic or constitutional order, like the case in Venezuela in 2016 and Honduras 2009, but also means a support for countries asking for assistance 
as with the case of the uh, 2020 mission to Guatemala or the 2021 mission to El Salvador. The charter is preventative. It helps to stabilize democracies. Restoring the hemispheric commitment to democratic values and principles in the Americas will definitely require a lot of work within the organization, but we also require American leadership through the model of the democratic charter. We require your political commitments and the resources necessary to support in the consolidation of democratic activities. The OES simply cannot deploy democratic missions or implement activities without the financial resources to do so. You will need good friends and allies if you want to see successful policies implemented in a democratic path. If we shy away from these democratic responsibilities, we will all too quickly find ourselves in a hemisphere with unfriendly faces, surrounded by regimes who have rejected democracy, instead choosing an ideology of corruption and repression. Definitely we have challenges ahead, like COVID-19, and in that sense, Governments throughout the region will need assistance of tackling the economic fallout and providing much-needed social services. We will need to pump additional financial resources into restarting economies, increase flexibility to face debt, and provide loans. Equal access and equitable distribution of vaccines will be essential to post-COVID growth and recovery. Definitely, the recent United States commitment to support its immediate neighbors access vaccines, it is a welcome start. More needs to be done to ensure vaccines also flow to your third border with the Caribbean countries and throughout the continent. We have ahead, of course, years for elections, and definitely we need to improve uh, election integrity. The problems that we have been faced with a series of fraud elections you have mentioned the cases of uh, Venezuela and plus others. Definitely we have been facing that problem about the, the continent. The Nicaraguan case is a case that needs an urgent and immediate reform, electoral reform. We have done the so in Honduras. We still have to improve a lot the way the, the Honduras democracy uh, electoral process work. We are working with, um, with Haiti too in order to improve their electoral process. And we have to face uh, extreme cases. The Bolivian was an extreme case with significant irregularities. Elections observers were ex essential. The electoral fraud in Bolivia represented a paradigmatic ex example of ill-intentioned practices with the goal of manipulating the electoral outcome. Definitely, we can go through all the irregularities we found, uh, including uh, irregular servers, uh, uh, illicit servers, false information, illicit um, filthy in irregular form, plus 20-something more uh, uh, irregularities. Uh, democratic processes must be transparent, inclusive. We need to work in, on technology because the technological issues become a bigger challenge today for democracy, for our electoral process. Democracy needs democratization. We must address any kind of all form of discrimination in our society, be it discrimination against marginalized communities, and case of gender, of women, LGBTQ, indigenous people, and communities of Afro-descendants, migrants, older persons, persons with disabilities, or marginalized religious communities, and anti-Semitism should be targeting, and we should be avoided any form of discrimination. We have to fight 
against corruption. The tool we have is the declaration of the uh, previous summit of the Americas. We have to work harder on this matter. We are applaud the initiative about having a sub-regional uh, uh, committee for investigating corruption in Central America. That is a, a very, very good starting point. Misinformation, and this information is also another topic in our, in our democracies. Um, we are now in the preparatory phase of the ninth summit of the Americas, again under the presidency of the United States. As we are entering the preparatory phase, it is evident that the recovery of the region in its health, economic, and social aspect will be very much at the center of our concerns, as well as the consequences on the democratic values and practices in the region on in this 20th anniversary of the Inter-American Democratic Charter. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Mr. Secretary General, and we'll go through a, a round of five minutes uh, questions. Let me uh, start off with the, the demolition of democracy in Venezuela has led to the emergence of a failed state in the Venezuelan people suffering a political, economic, and humanitarian crisis unrivaled by anything in our hemisphere. Under the Maduro regime, criminality and corruption reign. Both the OAS and the United Nations have produced evidence that the regime is complicit in crimes against humanity. I know you have been outspoken about the situation in Venezuela and its impact on the region, as well as the urgency for the international community to do more with reference to this crisis. What additional steps should the international community, and specifically countries in the Americas, take to mitigate the crisis and restore democracy in Venezuela? What additional steps can the OAS take to advance uh, that agenda? Thank you, Senator. Uh, Venezuela is an extreme case. Uh, if you want to target the worst uh, dictatorship we have ever had, uh, because it includes, uh, we, we can see there the dictators of Venezuela are accused of crimes against humanity in the Hague. They are accused of drug trafficking in, um, in uh, New York. Nephews of the um, president are in, in jail in the United States because of drug trafficking. Corruption is the highest ever in the history of the hemisphere and maybe the history of the world. Um, just to put a case, uh, Odebrecht corruption uh, amounted for something like $800 million in, in, in bribes uh, in 15 years. Uh, all the cases of Odebrecht corruption. The corruption of uh, just one case of PDVSA, uh, the Venezuelan oil company, in uh, Florida is one Point five billion dollars. That means it's double of the whole corruption of Odebrecht in the in 15 years. Just one case of corruption. That's why the amount of corruption of the Venezuelan regime targets about uh, at least 90 billion dollars. That is a Marshall Plan in, uh, in 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 currency now. So that is uh, is what the Venezuelan people are paying. This dictatorship brought the worst humanitarian crisis ever in the history of the hemisphere, the worst migration crisis ever in the history of the hemisphere, brought the worst cases of uh, uh, hosting terrorism in the history of the hemisphere. The, there you have uh, FARC dissidents, ELN, 
plus you have uh, uh, international organ uh, terrorist organizations like Hezbollah. So practically we have the worst of the worst in, in the Venezuelan dictatorship. The, the, the issue is that we have a very fragmented international agenda and we need to unify that international agenda. If, uh, if we see the strategy of the regime is to fragment agreements with, with different actors in the international community. So they have their own conversations with the European Union. They have their own conversations with Norway. They have certain conversations, of course, uh, with uh, some other actors in the hemisphere, out of the hemisphere with China and Russia. We have also uh, uh, different political actors interested in, in, in participating in a, in a different level. We have these cases don't help to bring democracy back to, so, to Venezuela. Forgive me for interrupting you. So, so then is, is what you're saying that a multilateral approach that is coordinated, whether it be on sanctions or for that fact humanitarian aid to the people of Venezuela is what needs to be marshaled together? It has to be coordinated international agenda. Oh. If we have to have a common international agenda related to Venezuela. We have to unify the agenda that has come Norway, European Union, United mm -hmm. States, the Organization of American States, and, uh, and the rest of the, uh, the countries involved in the Venezuelan case with a special participation of the neighbors. Let me turn to one other question because my time is about to expire, so I have a sense of what that, that requires. It's interesting to note that uh, the Venezuelan uh, uh, oppositions, for lack of a better name, is in meetings to try to bring together civil society, different political parties, and other elements in a common agenda, which I think would be very important. I want to ask you about one of the, the most troubling trends in the Americas, the lack of respect for separation of powers by certain elected leaders, whether it's a president that urges a mob to disrupt the certification of an election or a president that enters a legislature with armed members of the military an act of intimidation. Uh, there are concerning examples that, I could sh that I'm sure you're aware of throughout the hemisphere in El Salvador, Bolivia, and elsewhere. Each time an elected leader seeks to dismantle constitutional checks on power and weaken the rule of law, it shakes citizens' confidence in their democracy. Can you speak to us about the importance of respect for the separation of powers and what ultimately is at risk when elected leaders in the hemisphere abuse the power of their offices to undermine democratic institutions and processes? And what tools do you have or would you like to uh, reinforce the importance of the separation of powers in the hemisphere? Uh, the main tool we have, of course, is the Inter-American Democratic Charter. And in that sense, uh, for example, we were summoned, uh, we were called to go uh, to uh, Guatemala in 2020 and to El Salvador in 2021 because of the concerns of the different uh, branches of government related to how check and balances were working. And, uh, and there we provided, of course, our assistance. We uh, focus mainly in political dialogue. We work in strengthening the institutions. Uh, we work uh, hard in, in bringing... Uh, new capacities and human resources and in technology to these institutions. And, of course, we work very hard in assuring that uh, 
the elements of corruption or organized crime uh, that do not affect this, uh, this, the work of this institution. So the main uh, tool that we have always is, uh, is the Inter-American Democratic Charter. We, we issue a couple of, uh, of communiques related to Bolivia lately, uh, when uh, it started uh, something that, of course, uh, uh, a, a discriminatory way of uh, the judici Bolivian judiciary to approach uh, uh, politics, um, absolving ones and lynching others, so that it cannot work never. We have to be uh, always uh, aware that the independence and, uh, and of branches of different branches of government is the most important tool in democracies and check and balances is an imperative in our in our democracies in the region. So we have worked hard about this matter. We try to push forward in this direction and the tool we have and the commitment that we have with the Char Char Inter-American Democratic Charter, it will be the main element in order to uh, try to stop these, uh, these cases. Thank you very much. Senator Risch. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me uh, stay on Venezuela for a minute here. The U.S. led a successful effort to build a coalition of like-minded countries within the OAS to invoke the Rio Treaty and increase multilateral diplomatic pressure on the Maduro regime in Venezuela. In your opinion, what effect has the invocation of the Rio Treaty had on the Maduro regime? I think it, it worked. Uh, it worked very well, and it hurt the regime. Uh, the way that uh, it was approached, the the case of uh, of Venezuela in the uh, Organization of American States and uh, and the Rio treatment, treatment was uh, very important in order to increase the pressure on the regime and not allow the regime to enjoy impunity for their actions. So the legitimacy of the government uh, was declared. Uh, sanction to their, uh, uh, the leaders of the dictatorship were, were established. Uh, these uh, sanctions, of course, focused on persons and on procedures, targeted procedures that were working not in a proper way uh, within the, the regime. Well, a lot of the financial uh, mechanism of PDVSA was in order to uh, make it... Um, uh, to do money laundering uh, of drug trafficking or, or corruption, so we have a, a lot of uh, a, a lot of tools that have been implemented already, but have been implemented mainly by the United States and have been implemented by a couple of countries. Pa Panama was one of them, and uh, but it was practically the only country in the Americas were implemented those, implementing those sanctions. I think the applicability of these sanctions is important that is done by the whole hemisphere to have a, a, a positive result of, of pressure on, on this regime. Uh, what the United States have been doing, it is extremely relevant. The multilateral effort and multilateral pressure has been an important tool, but um, it, to work properly, we need uh, to... Uh, Everybody in the world, every country in the world, and, uh, and especially those committed to democracy, to act in the same way, under the same pattern, and creating the same conditions of pressure. Because, it, of course, it will never work if you put pressure on one side and somebody releases the pressure on, on the other side. That's why I mentioned today the need to unify the, multi the, the, the agenda, the 
in a multilateral approach, with a multilateral approach that will put everybody on the same page. Well, thank you for that. Um, speak for a moment, if you would, about what you see the future of all this is. I think all of us have been greatly disappointed as to how long Maduro has hung on. I remember sitting in this committee uh, shortly after Maduro took over, and everyone was predicting short-lived and uh, that uh, Juan Guaido would be properly recognized and the country would uh, shake itself off of Maduro and go forward. And, of course, that hasn't happened. And what, when, this, when, when you get to this position, you start thinking, are we headed for another multi-decade uh, situation like uh, happened in, in Cuba or, or other countries? What, 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 what's your sense of timing? What's your, assess, what's your assessment of how this thing ends, how it, how it uh, moves forward from what the current conditions are? I think... Uh, um more needs to be done and, uh, and more by different actors of the international community. Uh, it is uh, very difficult for Venezuelan actors to uh, create conditions to uh, reverse the political situation. First of all, what they have done internationally, fragmenting the, the international agenda, they definitely have done it internally within the country fragmenting the opposition and, and with partial agreements with, with all political actors. And that uh, fragmentation of the agenda, of course, brought uh, a, a lack of uh, perspective of uh, the real objective and the need to have a real objective that is the redemocratization of the country. Uh, President uh, Guaido has done what uh, it was at his uh, reach, but... Uh, and according to the resources he has had, he did an extraordinary job. Uh, he uh, definitely needed, uh, um, and he still needs, more uh, international uh, support, N not only in, in the terms of recognition, but also in practical terms that can help him in order to definitely be able uh, with uh, material resources to change the situation. And, and for that, of course, uh, we have to understand that this country is suffering the worst humanitarian crisis ever. It has suffered the worst migration crisis ever. So mobilizing people these days in Venezuela, mobilizing the people these days in Venezuela is not so easy. Half of the people is... Uh, without food or without medicines and, uh, and, and living a miserable life. They cannot march because they don't have shoes. So that is the situation of the Venezuelan people today. We, uh, we definitely need to address the, the humanitarian situation of the, of, of the people in Venezuela. Uh, but we need to create internationally the conditions in order to, to have a unified agenda, as I said, that would be able to support strongly the, and, uh, uh, those that they have a, a way of moving forward uh, in a strong way against the, the, the dictatorship. Dictatorship, uh, they, they, they collapse under pressure. They never collapse if, uh, they don't, uh, if, if you don't put pressure on them. Uh, they can last for decades. And, 
and pressure definitely is, is the biggest element, the biggest tool, international pressure, in order to make the life of the dictators of Venezuela miserable and in order to be able, in that sense, to support the, the country. The biggest uh, sanction, that the, the, uh, the most cruel sanction that the, that the Venezuelan people have suffered has been to suffer this dictatorship that created all these conditions during this time. That is definitely is an imperative for us to be able to reverse that uh, that situation, and we have to use all diplomatic and political tools available to do so. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cardin. <clears throat> uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Secretary General. Thank you very much for your service, and thank you for joining us today. As we talk about the status of democracy in our hemisphere, we need to look at the status of good governance. And unfortunately, we have so-called democratic states that have weakness in governance that we really need to, to work on. Last year, the Congress passed legislation that Senator Wicker and I introduced uh, that uh, dealt with uh, strengthening the parliamentary aspects of the Organization of American States, uh, calling on a formal mechanism to involve parliamentarians uh, in the uh, operations of the OAS, including considering an annual forum. Uh, we used the example of the OSCE, which the Parliamentary Assembly has been very effective in promoting good governance. I, I just give you by way of example the initiation of the trafficking commitments globally to fight human trafficking. Uh, to deal with the global Magnitsky statute came out of the Parliamentary Assembly. And many of us have participated in uh, free and fair election observation teams that have been in country. I well, was with Senator Portman in Ukraine as we observed elections. It gave us a much better feeling to the circumstances, and quite frankly, we're not as restrained as diplomats are in the nicety of language. We can go back and, and speak truth to power as to what needs to be done. Are you committed to working with us to implement greater parliamentarian participation in the OAS? Yes, uh, Senator, thank you very much. Yes, um, we, are, we are ready and we have uh, talked about this issue. I think it's a very important matter and a stronger connection, a stronger links of uh, uh, U.S. senators and Congress uh, people to, uh, with the uh, parliaments of the Americas will be extremely helpful in order to provide a stronger parliaments uh, everywhere in the hemisphere and, of course, uh, better capacities of these uh, parliaments and parliamentarians. So we are ready to, to work together. It was a pity that uh, COVID-19 stop it this, um, but uh, as soon as uh, normal life is restarted, I'm, I'm sure we can, uh, we can create conditions for a, a stronger participation of uh, United States senators and, and congresses in order to, 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 to engage better in the activities of the hemisphere and, and definitely create different conditions for them for their work, and, uh, and that will create definitely stronger democracies. I just point out that when parliamentarians are involved, there's a much better chance that the policies adopted by the organization will be implemented in their particular states because they go back and act 
and promote the policy. So it not only gives you a richer involvement to deal with the problems of our hemisphere, it also gives us a better, better chance to see implementation of those policies in the member states. There's a very troubling trend in our hemisphere, and that's corruption. For a hemisphere that brags about having democratic states, we lead the world in the number of states that rank the worst in fighting corruption. Venezuela is ranked 176 out of 180. Haiti's ranked 170th out of 180. Nicaragua, 159th out of 180 in, uh, in uh, their suffering from corruption. And I could mention Honduras, Guatemala, Paraguay, Dominican Republic, Mexico, Bolivia. All those are well above the world average. So my question to you, what initiatives are you pursuing within the OAS and how can we help you in dealing with the increasing concerns about corruption which erode democratic institutions and makes it much more difficult for us to have true democracies in our hemisphere? Thank you very much. I think we have to start with supporting governments today in order to have uh, more transparent uh, policies, uh, more transparent and fair mechanisms and procedures uh, that to, wouldn't allow or will give less margin to corruption. Um, if I, I could be ruling a country today, my first, uh, uh, my first objective, my, uh, my top priority would be that nobody around me steals anything. No, nobody in my entourage of government would steal anything because that will bring a lot of problems for the current government and, of course, for the, the, uh, the welfare of the ruling, uh, of the ruling uh, leader today. So I think we have to, to create stronger pro programs and, uh, in, and projects in order to support uh, a cleaning inside of these uh, of, of these uh, these governments today uh, e government transparency uh, more transparent government uh, governance all that is extremely necessary and should be promoted in the hemisphere and then um, to have a more able justice, more able justice systems around, in order to fight corruption or previous corruption, uh, to um, to end in the impunity of corruption, uh, that is something that uh, is still we we have moved from a certainty of uh, of impunity to a possibility of justice, but we are very far away from certainty of justice that we need to achieve in the in the hemisphere, and. And definitely, it's a it's a structural problem, a structural in in most in, in the political systems that you mentioned. Uh, that practically we, you have to reset them and restart them and and making them work in a completely different manner. They, the way they are doing their their, their job, uh, uh, definitely today it doesn't work. So it, it, we need to create new capacities. And we need to provide assistance in order to rule in a different way. Uh, if they keep, keep doing the same, I mean, you can judge them later, you can prosecute them, uh, the, the same problems will keep, will keep appearing. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, 
Mr. Secretary General, I very much appreciate your being here and appreciate your service to the OAS and to uh, our hemispheres. And uh, I presume that being the father of seven qualifies you for the kind of uh, interactions you have to have with leaders of various countries. Um, it's uh, not lost on you or any that watch what's happening in the world to recognize that there's a great competition going on in the world between uh, a future that includes democracy and liberal democracy and instead a, an authoritarian uh, future. And that is playing out in Latin America as it is uh, throughout the world. As you look at what's happening in Latin America, um, how much of what we're seeing there is a result just of domestic um, uh, passions uh, and interests, and how much is being uh, influenced by foreign actors? And by that, I mean ourselves, the United States, Russia, China, to, to whether Venezuela or throughout the, the continent, the continents. Uh, are, 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 is this a domestic issue that we're seeing, domestic passions playing out? Or is this instead being influenced to a great degree by China, Russia, and the United States? And what is our relative capacity, meaning how effective is China being compared to the United States, for instance? So I know I'm asking a lot of questions there, so uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you respond as you feel appropriate. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Senator. And uh, yes, uh, we have structural problems in Latin America. Those structural problems is, for example, we are the most unequal uh, continent in the world. Another structural problem is violence. Uh, we are the most violent region. We kill. We have more violent de death than any any other region in the world. Uh, we have had structural poverty of the same kind for hundreds of years. I mean, and I always put the example of, of my country where uh, we, we seem to be the most equal country, Uruguay seems to be the most equal country in Latin America, and still uh, you have the same structure of poverty that uh, 205 years ago when Artigas did the, the land reform of the country. That means, uh, for example, Afro-descendants at 8% of the population, they count for 40% of poverty. Uh, those days where widowers were children, today are single mothers that count also for a huge percentage of the poverty of the country. We have a structural poverty, a structural problems that we have not been able to resolve. Um, other countries, of course, they are facing corruption, and that is, of course, creates awful conditions for the functioning of democracy. Organized crime, drug trafficking have created structural problems and, and very difficult to make elections when you kill candidates all about, when the candidates are killed all about, and uh, some others resigned in order not to, have, to be killed. You see that you have uh, there structural problems in how democracy can, can work. So uh, I, uh, I think we have been more efficient in destroying, the Latin Americans, we have been more efficient in destroying democracy than, uh, than the international support that we have had for that. It's pro of course, uh, some, uh, this country believes in democracy, and so they are always uh, 
trying to influence the right decisions, the separations uh, of the, uh, and independence of branches of government, uh, uh, the free press, uh, freedom of expression, um, uh, the fight against corruption. Uh, of course, uh, programs of security are all about uh, uh, all about the hemisphere, and some countries they don't have that uh, as a pattern uh, of their political system. So, of course, they are not so interested in promoting that. Uh, whatever it is there, it may uh, it may work for them, but uh, sometimes corrupt regimes may be better in a sense that it is easy to to operate, uh, if you do illegal mining, it's, uh, it's easier in, in Venezuela than in a democratic country. If uh, you do an ecocide, it's easier in Venezuela than in a democratic country. So uh, even if these uh, factors uh, intervene, uh, and of course, we have a, a regional factor, an hemispheric factor, that is, uh, is Cuba, that is a dictatorship of, of decades that is still there and have worked very hard in the 60s, 70s, uh, promoting guerrilla all about the hemisphere. Uh, then uh, just um, trying to destabilize uh, democracies in, in, in their, own, their own way. Uh, it's a failed system. That system never worked in the, in the world, never, didn't work in Central Asia, didn't work in East, Eastern Europe, didn't work in the Soviet Union, uh, didn't work in Cuba, and now it's not working in Venezuela. Uh, and so, but uh, their political approach is always uh, to create problems for the others, to make their problems uh, sort of uh, less evident. And... Uh, and of course, their, their presence in Venezuela is clear how they have influenced Venezuela to go that track. Uh, the presence of uh, 20,000 Cubans in Venezuela is uh, a, a problem. It's, a biggest, it's the biggest problem that Venezuela is facing. And if you, you, you want to have a democratic uh, Venezuela one day, uh, Cuba will be part of the problem and not part of, this, of the solution. I, I'm sorry for that. They have been part of the problem the past 18 years, 20 years. So um, we assume, we have to assume our faults and our shortcomings and our mischievous behavior. Uh, but of course, uh, sometimes uh, some have helped to, to go down the, the, the cliff. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I understand we have Senator Rounds virtually. Senator Rounds. All right. Let me move uh, to Senator Young. Welcome, Mr. Secretary General. Uh, it's good to have you before the committee. Your testimony today describes the work that Russia and China are doing through vaccine diplomacy. It's clear that both countries intend to use uh, this crisis, which ironically enough, emerged, it seems, from China and was certainly exacerbated by China's uh, failure to uh, disclose in a timely fashion uh, the gravity and nature of this virus. We still don't have all the information. Uh, but nonetheless, it's clear that uh, uh, both of these countries intend to use their vaccines as a tool to accomplish a broader foreign policy a set of goals and to develop inroads similar to what we've witnessed China 
do with its Belt and Road Initiative. In recent days, I've heard that China's providing vaccines to some countries in, in the Caribbean and uh, throughout Latin America in exchange for changing their diplomatic relationship with uh, China or recognition of Taiwan. If successful, this would be a significant shift in the People's Republic of China's favor as a majority of Taiwan's diplomatic partners globally are in Latin America currently. Um, so, sir, are you worried about countries receiving these vaccines with some uh, potentially significant strings attached? Yes. Uh, some countries have been... Um, uh, uh, India, for example, has, already, has also provided donations, mainly donations to Caribbean countries. And, uh, and of course, uh, this makes uh, countries grateful uh, because uh, when you don't, have, you don't find solutions anywhere else, you find solutions wherever you, you can in Understood. order to vaccinate your people. So that's why I asked during my presentation for a stronger commitment of the United States of America in order to deliver. Uh, do you have delivered vaccines to Canada and to Mexico? Uh, you have a third border that is CARICOM countries, Caribbean countries. They should be attended to. They should be taken care of too. And, uh, and the rest of the hemisphere. Uh, and that is a, is a most relevant uh, matter today, uh, to be close in this situation. And uh, it, it is a, a, a relevant matter. And, uh, and to work in a positive way in order to, to deliver solutions to the country of the hemisphere, uh, it will be something that uh, will be good for, for everybody. I mean, uh, most of these countries have looked uh, to buy the, these vaccines here, and uh, and and that is uh, that is something that has been uh, to be taken care. I mean, the, they have looked here to, to in order to to buy the vaccine. So uh, something has to be uh, stronger. Uh, solutions should come from here, from here, not only for for the borders, but also for the rest of the of the of the continent. Yes, you know, it's such a. It's such a difficult challenge. Um, as you might imagine, every country wants to ensure that their people are cared for. That's uh, what countries do. They care for their own people. But at the same time, we, we have allies and partners, um, especially those here in our region, uh, that we'd also like to be helpful to, in addition to providing those vaccines, which, of course, uh, no doubt is essential. You've emphasized that. Um, China, there again, ironically, has been the first to emerge from this pandemic, uh, seeing as uh, they have a better understanding of its nature and they have an authoritarian government that can enact certain strictures that um, uh, democratic governments cannot. But with that said, um, how else might we empower OAS to push back on these coercive practices that we see in China um, utilize uh, in exchange for vaccines? Uh, first, uh, we have a, an, an issue, with, uh, and some, sometimes I have been asking, why don't you do more about vaccines? And, and the thing is that we have the Pan American Health Organization that is mainly in charge. And, 
and I think the the, the most uh, successful way is is to deliver before. That is the most successful way in order to to reverse those policies, and and to be able to deliver before. That is uh, th that I think should be the practice, and that should be the the the, the policy uh, behind. Uh, uh, of course, it's, sometimes it's harder because uh, of uh, the way that uh, uh, a regime can concentrate resources, financial, economic, material resources, is completely different than in the way democracies. But democracies have proved to be more efficient in the, in the, in the mid uh, and long term. Uh, but they, they have to see the scenario. Of course, uh, everybody also is, is concerned about uh, uh, itself, and it has to be something like that. Uh, it's, it's completely understandable. Uh, nevertheless, uh, um, to, be, uh, to be concerned about uh, and find solution for ourselves and for itself, anyone, it is helpful to to help others, and and that I think is should be the the, the policy to of the United States to the rest of the continent related to this matter. Well, just for the record, I think it's wonderful that uh, the Caribbean countries and Latin American countries are receiving vaccines. I, I think that's a very positive thing, uh, and I would commend any nation uh, for uh, in isolation for for doing that, for ensuring their fellow human beings are vaccinated from this uh, pandemic. Uh, that also helps uh, all of us so that it doesn't continue to uh, spread and, and, um, and evolve into other strains. Um, it's this conditionality that I think each of us has uh, sort of a responsibility to talk about um, so that the nature of, of uh, these authoritarian regimes uh, is, is made very, very clear. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, co this uh, coalition shouldn't be possible. That is the most important part. We shouldn't make it possible. We shouldn't make it available, and that is what uh, how we should act in order to 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 avoid this, and then to give support uh, afterwards uh, in order to to avoid any kind of of, of this kind of coercion. But you also have to. Uh, consider that uh, China is the, the main trade partner of, of most of Latin American uh, countries. Uh, even if they have relations or not, they, or they don't have relations with, with, with continental China. And, and that is, uh, uh, is something that, uh, of course, need to be, needs to be addressed. We need better uh, trade among ourselves, uh, and that is something that we, we will have to work in the, in the future. And I think that I hope the, the organization can can uh, uh, encourage some, some actions related to have a, a stronger uh, inter-trade uh, in, the, in, the inter uh, in the Americas. I support that. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I do want to piggyback on Senator Young's comments. Um, of course, we have to take care uh, of our people in order to uh, be healthy and therefore be able to lead. Uh, but I do agree that to the extent that we have uh, capacity when we get beyond that, I would hope that the hemisphere will be one of the first places that we will look towards uh, in our own national interest, to be very honest with you, um, not only as a good neighbor, uh, but because we are neighbors, we are more likely to have individuals traveling uh, within the hemisphere, uh, you know, within our country and beyond the, the many 
millions uh, of diaspora that exist in the United States from these separate countries uh, just creates a natural flow of people coming back and forth. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's right to call China out on its coercive policies on this, which is the most heinous of all trading, say, I'll give you a vaccine if you do this. Uh, but they have other coercive policies that they do in terms of their uh, investments. But by the same token, if you're suffering and you're looking for something and you've got nowhere else to go, then you maybe submit yourself to those coercive policies as wrong as they are. And so that's why I hope the United States will get to the point to be uh, uh, supportive, particularly here hemispherically. I I think there's many reasons for it. With that, let me recognize the chairman of the Western Hemisphere Subcommittee, um, someone who's had a long history and very interested in the hemisphere, uh, Senator Kane. And I'm going to ask Senator Cardin to preside because I have a banking hearing that I just need to get a few questions in. I'll be back. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Thank you to Chairman Menendez and uh, Senator Risch for holding this hearing, very important hearing. I'm thrilled to be the chair together with my ranking member, Senator Rubio, on the Committee on Western Hemisphere, Human Rights, Global Democracy, Women's Empowerment. And Mr. Secretary General, I'm a big fan of yours. I really want to focus on how we can help the OAS to be effective. And I'm going to use a painful example for me, which is um, activities of the OAS and the United States in Honduras, where I lived in 1980 and 81. Um, In the 2017 presidential elections in Honduras, there were huge irregularities. We want the OAS to be strong and be willing to call out problems throughout the region. We celebrate what the OAS has been willing to do, for example, with respect to Venezuela. But after the Honduran presidential election, the OAS called out the irregularities and said they were so severe that the recommendation from the OAS was that the election needed to be repeated so that those irregularities could be cured. Um, The United States wants the OAS to be strong, but in that instance, the previous administration undercut the OAS. The OAS said the elections need to be rerun. I and other members of the committee came out in support of the OAS position. But the previous administration said, no, we're going to go ahead and recognize the new government anyway. And they recognized the re-election of President Hernandez because he had done a variety of things that the administration liked. After we recognized the re-election over the recommendation of the OAS, President Hernandez uh, terminated a transparency initiative that was a global transparency initiative that he had embraced with some some uh, strong PR sense in his first term. Uh, violence and corruption in Honduras spiraled downward. The immigration of Hondurans to the United States has increased because of the violence and corruption. And as members of this committee know, the president's brother, President Hernandez's brother, was convicted of drug trafficking with a lot of evidence that implicated the president. And there was just the completion of a second sizable drug trafficking case in the federal courts of New York against an associate of President Hernandez, where there was much testimony about President Hernandez's role in facilitating drug trafficking, including evidence that he had stated, we're going to shove drugs up the gringos' noses. That was some of the evidence of this president that the U.S. chose to recognize over the OAS's objections. If we want the OAS to be strong, Mr. Secretary General, and we want the OAS to be able to take tough positions, it seems to me that the U.S. should be defaulting toward trying to support the OAS in that rather than undercutting the OAS's uh, tough decisions when they make them. Share with us how we, as a Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate, can help the OAS be strong in the region to counter 
corruption, violence, and other ills that plague us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator King. Um, it's true we, uh, we identified irregularities in the Honduras election. We made them public. We called for a, a new election. Uh, uh, this, uh, uh, after 15 days, uh, let's say, um, about two weeks later, uh, started the recognitions of uh, the new government of, uh, of the government of Honduras, of the reelection of President Hernandez. So, um, practically, we were left uh, talking alone about this matter. Um, uh, worldwide and uh, and, uh, and and definitely that uh, we paid a, a, a huge uh, toll because uh, after that the, the mission of uh, to fight corruption uh, was not renewed and of course we had to pick up our things some and, of and, them. and Mr. Secretary General when you say we paid a huge toll we paid a huge price you mean the OAS paid a the, huge the, price the, the Honduran the, people paid a great price the United States paid a great price by you know, not striking against an authoritarian, and now we're dealing with a crisis at the border that's driven by intense violence and corruption in a country. And so we're, if, if we don't act to support organizations like the OAS, we will end up seeing things that we're not happy with. The, uh, I, I uh, agree with, uh, with you, because uh, bad practices have to be eradicated from the very beginning. And the Honduras political system paid a, a, a huge price. Uh, the, the Honduras people paid a higher price. Uh, the organization, of course, uh, of all the prices that were paid was the, the lowest, uh, we can say. We just picked up our things and, and we left uh, some of the resources, material resources we had. We are using now in El Salvador in the mission that we have there to fight. And Mr. Secretary General, I'm over my time and there are other colleagues who want to weigh in, but just... Uh, let's just finish there. By not supporting the OAS at a critical moment when you were willing to show backbone, Hondurans paid a major price. The OAS paid a price, and the United States paid a price as well. I hope we might learn that lesson. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Haggerty. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Rich, thank you very much for holding this hearing. Uh, Secretary General, it's nice to have you here today. Thank you very much. Secretary General, in the Western Hemisphere, we've seen governments use illegitimate means to change or even nullify election rules and processes related to their democratic elections. The illegitimate Maduro regime in Venezuela is the most recent example of this type of activity. For example, in May of 2018, the illegitimate Maduro regime repeatedly changed, abused, and rewrote the rules in order to hold a sham election that failed to meet any sort of international standard for fair, free, and transparent voting. And more recently, the illegitimate Maduro regime has sought to stack and manipulate in its own favor Venezuela's Federal Election Commission. Secretary General, would you agree with the general proposition that the voting public's confidence in free and fair elections including impartial and transparent electoral processes, is necessary and critical to a well-functioning democracy? Uh, 
I completely agree. It is uh, that uh, the starting point of, of democracy Indeed. for the people to be able to elect in a free way, transparent, just, and that the votes are counting, counted properly. That is all about, it's about the integrity of the electoral process. We have to see it from practically the very beginning. And uh, we have to monitor practically every single aspect of it. Today, the challenges are big because technology is, uh, keeps improving. And, and of course, we have to keep track with technology. Uh, at the same time, we need to uh, be able to, uh, to read adequately the, the political system and how it works. We, we observe elections, we observe facts, and, uh, and, and we denounce those facts and we document them and we prove them. We, uh, and those countries that uh, they want, we can help them in order to uh, have a better electoral process uh, like we are doing now in, in Haiti and, and in Honduras. Uh, it, is a, it is a hard, hard work. Sometimes it's a, it's a very demanding work. Uh, the Venezuelan case is an extreme case because, I mean, uh, elections there are not elections at all. They don't have any pattern that is common with any election anywhere. I mean, they do fraud among them. For example, there was this election of the National Constituency, Constituent Assembly, and uh, that was, the position was not participating. Nevertheless, they pumped two million votes in in order to make one of the parties, uh, of that one, of the, the one of Delcy, Rodriguez, and Celia, defeat the other one of, uh, of uh, uh, Diosdado Cabello. That means they cheat among themselves the, uh, during the election. So that is the most extreme case that I have, I have seen in the hemisphere so far. Well, Secretary General, would you agree with the general proposition that a democracy risks fundamentally eroding itself when those in power change or negate election rules simply to stay in power? I completely, I completely agree. I can sign below, definitely. I would agree with that, too. And we're witnessing happening right here in America today, at least an attempt. Secretary, what do you hope that the members of the OAS will be able to accomplish in terms of helping the Venezuelan people find their way back to democracy? Yes. I think first uh, we need to attend the urgent matters. Uh, the urgent matter is uh, the humanitarian crisis, and that means we need to find uh, mechanisms and tools in order to support the people to have food and to have medicines. That is uh, the most urgent matter related to Venezuela. About the institutional issues in Venezuela, I suggested uh, today, that we need, a, we need a unified international agenda that can help to create real pressure on the regime and move under a mechanism that uh, can definitely make harder for Maduro to stay in power than uh, to, to leave it. Uh, till that not, doesn't happen, it, uh, uh, the regime will stay there. This, this kind of regimes, you definitely have to uh, pump and a sustainable pressure. If not, they, they don't have any connection with political welfare of the people. I mean, uh, and you can, see, you can see it also with the Cuban regime, and you can see it in Venezuela. They are not responsible for what is going on for, with the people. If uh, people are dying because of lack of dialysis, they don't care. 
children die because they died because they didn't have vac uh, vaccination of uh, diphtheria and they didn't care. That's something that would bring down government, democratic governments anywhere. They don't care. They do illegal mining. They do drug trafficking. They, the levels of corruption are the highest ever. And they don't care. They have illegal mining. How would dictatorship have illegal mining? Because they can approve whatever they want in order to do the mining in their own way. They do illegal mining because they can steal everything that they took from the mining, because they can do a complete ecocide of the system. And they, and they are not responsible. They are not responsible about their natural resources. They are not responsible about the mineral resources. They are not responsible for their people. That means uh, they don't have a political connection. It's a, a criminal gang acting in a criminal way until they are not completely surrounded, they will, they will not surrender. Thank you, Secretary General. Thank you. I think your response underscores the importance to deal with corruption and transparency that you've talked about before. Uh, Senator Schatz is recognized. Thank you, uh, Mr. Secretary General. Thank you for being here. I want to ask you about the war on drugs. Uh, over the last several decades, we've struck a better balance in terms of our approach to co uh, combining security assistance with funding de democracy programs, programs that strengthen the, the judiciary, law enforcement, and civil society. But the war on drugs, in my view, is still failing our partners in the region. We're making short-term decisions to get a good headline about seizing drugs without thinking through the consequences for the people. For instance, the U.S. Coast Guard is great at closing down maritime routes and interdicting drugs that come over the water, but we see increasingly that cartels have turned instead to overland routes, clearing forests to build remote airstrips and seizing land from indigenous tribes and local communities. Too often this is done with impunity and it shakes people's trust in the ability of the national and local governments to protect the lands. So I have a basic question for you. Is, is the war on drugs working? Is the war on drugs working? Uh. It's, uh, it's not uh, working uh, in the sense that it's not delivering the results that we need in the hemisphere. Uh, and it is very easy to see. My, my whole budget is the whole budget of this organization, not the, the, the money that we allocate to, 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 for projects related to drug prevention or fighting uh, organized crime or, or drug cartels is less than $80 million. Uh, that is a joke in, in drug trafficking terms, in financial drug trafficking terms. So they are con definitely not well prepared at the multilateral level in order to do so. We do, we do projects, uh, we encourage um, best practices we uh, help in order to develop uh, uh, better lives in certain communities uh, we have been able in order to uh, create better conditions uh, um, for security in some uh, in some communities but overwhelmingly this drug trafficking is affecting democracy is uh, is killing candidates is uh, forcing candidates uh, to resign uh, is uh, uh, electing uh, their uh, sometimes their mayors of their sometimes their heads of police so it's a it's a struggle where we are not uh, achieving the results that we definitely owe the people to to achieve 
Is it a question of our strategy being flawed, or is it a question of insufficient resources? Because it seems to me that um, our instinct in the Congress is always to throw more resources at interdiction, even though um, we've seen over the many, many years with demand never really waning, supply finds a way north. And so I'm wondering, because I want to get clear here, you, you talk about the lack of resources, and the worry I would have is that then the Congress throws more resources at interdiction, which again allows us to stand next to a bunch of uh, 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 illegal product and claim victory when things get worse and worse uh, 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 in, in the region. Uh, and, and, and maybe maybe you're, you're right. I, uh, and, uh, I have a view, and uh, it's related to to my own experience and what I I, I, uh, I did in in, in the past. Uh, mainly in the days I was Minister of Foreign Affairs of Uruguay. Uh, uh, it's, uh, you have to find a way to kidnap that. Uh, it's, it's about the market. No? It's, that is, uh, that, that, that's the market rules. So, so far, the market will, will keep demanding. This will keep going on. And, and the rest of the chain will put pressure on the rest of the chain. And... Uh, we have to address how the market of drugs work in a, in a more proper way and, and to be able to kidnap part of that market with the better tools you may have and consider the differences of the different drugs between them. And, uh, and of course, uh, be able to support people in a... And that means a, a, lot, of, a lot of things, means security, uh, first, first, and, and and how to make a living, and uh, and that is uh, the, are the biggest challenge for 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 common people, and and of course uh, the lack of of development of our of our country plays a, a major role in 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 uh, in the in the problems of of violence that, uh, and and collateral effects of the drugs that we we are facing these days. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I understand that no one else. Okay. My understanding is that there's no one on either side virtually, unless I hear differently. And in the absence of hearing anyone, Mr. Secretary General, thank you very much for your incredibly important insights, for your generous time here. You have the thanks of uh, Senator Risch, myself, and the committee uh, for your service uh, in the hemisphere. Thank you for joining us. Uh, as the Secretary departs, let me welcome uh, to the committee uh, Ms. Deborah Ulmer, who is the Regional Director for Latin America and the Caribbean at the National Democratic Institute, and Mr. Ryan Berg, a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Ms. Ulmer has more than 20 years of experience at NDI and previously served as NDI's Country Director in Nicaragua and then Honduras prior to assuming her current role. She has extensive experience managing democratic assistance and human rights programming across the region. As a fellow at AEI, Mr. Berg focuses on U.S. foreign policy, national security, and development issues in Latin America and the Caribbean. And he specializes on transnational organized crime and narcotics trafficking. Prior to AEI, he served at the World Bank. Uh, welcome to both of you. Thank you for uh, your 
willingness to come share uh, your insights. Uh, your full statements will be included in the record. We'd ask you to limit your opening remarks to around five minutes, uh, and uh, this way we can have a conversation. Ms. Solmer, uh, you are recognized. On? Now is this on? Yes. Thank you, Chairman Menendez and Ranking Member Reich. Thank you for this opportunity to address the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on the State of Democracy in Latin America and the Caribbean. My name is Deborah Ulmer, and I'm the Regional Director for Latin America and the Caribbean programs at the National Democratic Institute. NDI is dedicated to strengthening democratic governance, practices, and institutions globally, and has worked in the region for nearly 35 years. Like our Republican counterparts, the International Republican Institute, NDI works with civic groups, government officials, legislators, and political parties across the political spectrum at the national and local levels on issues such as citizen security, election integrity, accountability and transparency, dialogue on political reform, and combating disinformation. Since the adoption of the Inter-American Democratic Charter almost 20 years ago, numerous challenges to democratic governments have emerged including a rise in authoritarian leaders and increased preference for populist leaders, challenges to electoral integrity by governments that bend the rules of the game in their favor and infuse political financing from narco-traffickers, and a growing prevalence of disinformation and illiberal influences. Honorable members of the committee, as you know, we could spend hours talking about the democratic fragility in Latin America. So in the interest of time, I would like to propose five areas of bipartisan engagement to help strengthen democratic governance in the region. First, the Ninth Summit of the Americas provides a great opportunity to revitalize commitment to core democratic principles and respect for human rights as consecrated in the Democratic Charter. As the summit host, the United States can pursue resolutions that underscore the need to collectively safeguard human rights and free and fair elections, and promote transparency and accountability. Reaffirming these values and backing with actions will be key as illiberal countries such as Russia and China seek to expand their negative economic, political, and security role in the hemisphere. Second, in dealing with authoritarian regimes, the United States should use all of its available policy tools, including the implementation of the groundbreaking Corporate Transparency Act passed in 2020 to end corrupt actors' ability to hide stolen funds behind anonymous shell companies. Third, as is often stated, elections are an essential building block, but insufficient conditions for sustainable democracy. In NDI's experience, corrupt political dynamics are precursors to flawed elections and serve as catalysts for instability. Support for improved democratic governance in between elections is a necessary investment to promote a more stable environment. Fourth, sustained U.S. democracy in Northern Central America is necessary to improve governance, transparency, and accountability, 
all essential elements for development and security goals to be advanced. But accountability initiatives can only succeed when there is both internal public and international support. The United States should provide strong backing to both reformers both inside and outside of government. I would also like to note that there is a strong desire by Central Americans for U.S. foreign policy to consider the whole region, including interlinked neighboring countries outside of the Northern Triangle. Finally, authoritarian regimes are finding more sophisticated and illiberal uses of technologies to surveil, subvert, and control their citizens. A united effort among democracies has made some progress to ensure new technologies are used to support freedom and human rights. The United States should promote the integrity of the underlying information space so authentic communications underpin the legitimacy and resilience of democracy around the world. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Reich, and members of the committee, thank you again for this opportunity to testify. I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you uh, very much, Mr. Berg. Is this on? Great. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and members of the committee, thank you very much for the opportunity to testify today on the state of democracy in Latin America and the Caribbean. As the world approached the last decade of the Soviet Union's existence and the eventual denouement of the Cold War, it seemed an inauspicious moment for the fate of democracy in the region, with military regimes still running many countries. Instead, a remarkable phenomenon transpired in the region from the mid-1980s until the signing of the Inter-American Democratic Charter in 2001, the longest expansion and the deepest consolidation of democracy in the region's history. The charter enshrined the region's commitment to democracy and attempted to impel still un unconsolidated democratic institutions toward further consolidation. Alas, these high-minded aspirations proved elusive in practice. The march toward a hemisphere safe for democracy was uneven and did not endure. Cuba resisted all change and continued as a communist dictatorship. Venezuela and Nicaragua succumbed to the ravishes of authoritarianism. Argentina, Bolivia, Ecuador, and more recently Brazil and Mexico were taken by the siren song of populism. Central American states failed to build on early gains and eventually suffered deep democratic backsliding. And organized crime, many times aided and abetted by the highest echelons of political power, spread its tentacles of anti-democratic corruption throughout the region. Two of the most notable trends of the past decade are the rise of hybrid regimes and authoritarian spoilers, both regional and extra-regional alike. Regionally, several countries, despite their democratic facade, are actually autocratic or authoritarian in nature. Scholars have described this hybrid regime type, where democratic institutions exist in form but not in substance, and where elections occur regularly, and are largely stage-managed as competitive authoritarianism. In addition to hybrid regimes in the region, extra-regional authoritarian actors have also stymied dem democratization by supporting backsliding and authoritarian governments and insulating them from democratic pressures through what we call authoritarian export and authoritarian learning. Like a family recipe, extra-regional authoritarian powers have bequeathed to several Latin American countries, namely the Venezuela and Nicaragua, their best advice in regime adaptation and survival. The Inter-American Democratic Charter and traditional foreign policy tools of democracies have unfortunately proven no match 
for the designs of these authoritarians. In sum, the state of democracy in today's Latin America and the Caribbean may be limping instead of sprinting. Democracy may not shine as brightly as it once did, but it carries on, in, need, in desperate need of renewal and strengthening. Meanwhile, great power rivals are cheering democracy's stumbles, actively working to thwart its success, and promoting alternative systems of governance antithetical to a hemisphere safe for democracy. What are some of the lessons learned over the past two decades of the Inter-American Democratic Charter? First, the Charter has often failed to inspire a vision for the hemisphere of integrated and increasingly prosperous democracies. Rather, at times it has avoided slipping into irrelevance only as a coercive tool in the attempt to bring wayward countries back into line. Second, elections by themselves are not enough. As others have noted here today, this year Latin America witnesses an election supercycle with nine countries holding elections. While the Charter helped the region maintain an admirable focus on elections, this was insufficient. A prominent Nicaraguan struggling for freedom in his country recently remarked to me, fraud isn't committed on the election day, but rather months in advance with manipulations of the tabulation system, voting boards, and national electoral councils. Third, the Charter is subject to and suffers from unfavorable regional dynamics, and this has vitiated the Charter's ability to serve as a policing mechanism among a community of co-equal democracies. And fourth, leadership of the OAS matters immensely. Under past Secretaries General, the Charter suffered notable defeats. Secretary General Luis Almagro deserves our high praise for elevating the Charter in the work of the Secretariat and reviving the Charter's relevance by placing it back at the center of the OAS's mission. Now, Mr. Chairman, with the brief remaining time, I would like to go through a few quick policy recommendations for the United States to forge a hemisphere safe for democracy and defeat great power rivals, pushing alternative antithetical systems of government. First, dismantle transnational organized crime networks. No amount of rhetorical fondness for the Inter-American Democratic Charter can overcome the deeply embedded networks that permeate the Western Hemisphere, emanating most startlingly from the criminal regimes in Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. Second, beware of the autocrats' playbook. Consolidated dictatorships are extremely difficult to dismantle, but fortunately, the tools afforded to us by the Inter-American Democratic Charter can help the U.S. sound a powerful toxin against Latin American regimes engaged in democratic backsliding before it's too late. Third, bring ideology back to the fore. Quite simply, the only way the U.S. will compete and outpace China and to a lesser extent Russia's burgeoning influence in the region is with a more attractive vision for our shared hemisphere. We should not shy away from the fact that this is a competition over ideology, as much as it is about influence. Shared principles are critical to forging robust coalitions, and for the region, these shared principles and aspirations are anchored unequivocally in the Charter. Fourth, leverage the International Development Finance Corporation and the Inter-American Development Bank. Recognizing the importance of the region, the U.S. Congress ought to consider a requirement that 35% of DFC lending be pegged to the Americas, as the Bipartisan Advancing Competitiveness, Transparency, and Security in the America Act, AXA, does. If paired with a much-needed capital increase at the IDB and with matched private financing, this could yield nearly a quarter of a trillion dollars over a five-year period. Some serious investment power to transform the region and limit China's One Belt, One Road initiative and its debilitating, debilitating debt trap financing practices. And lastly, Mr. Chairman, I think we need to reconsider the relationship between trade agreements and democracy efforts. The U.S. should reconsider its free trade agreements with countries considered not free by Freedom House. In the region, this means reconsidering Nicaragua's continued participation in CAFTA-DR 
Quite simply, the U.S. has no interest in permitting free trade arrangements to bolster security apparatuses of authoritarian regimes accused of committing crimes against humanity. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I look forward to answering the committee's questions. Thank you both for your testimony. I appreciated some good insights there. I certainly am a big supporter of uh, capitalizing up the IDB. I think can be a, a tremendous uh, instrument in the hemisphere to both promote our collective interests and, of course, uh, as a counterweight to China. Um, I have uh, one generic question, and then I have some country-specific questions. Uh, Ms. Solmer, um, well, for both of you, actually. So we're going to host the Summit of the Americas. Who gets invited? Uh, and I think it's important because, uh, you know, who, who's seated at the table in the first instance? It, it, there are those who might argue it's a Summit of the Americas, so everybody in the Americas gets invited. Uh, by the same token, there are those who would argue, well, the Inter-American Democratic Charter, those who abide by it, get invited, and those who do not understand that they need to uh, achieve that goal. Um, there are other conditions that others may suggest. What, 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 what are both of your views? Thank you uh, for the question. I would say it's important as the host of the summit that independent civil society organizations form part of this. Too many times, such as the Cuban Independent Civil Society, are clamoring to participate in multilateral forums. And it's important that we show our support to these groups and that they're part of the agenda, as has been in the, in the past uh, in Panama and Peru and other places. So in terms of who gets invited, I would say it's important to include independent civil society because they serve as a check on their own governments. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the question, Senator. I think uh, it's extremely important, as Ms. Ulmer mentioned in her oral uh, statement, that we go big when it comes to the uh, playing host of the, of the summit. Um, as the hosts, I think we have the ability to play a role um, uh, in who gets invited and, and as to the, to the invite list. However, I think it gets pretty hairy when it comes to uh, deciding who it is that ought to be on that invite list, because I, I understand that even members of this committee would probably disagree um, as to who is and who isn't abiding uh, by the charter. And so if the question is, do we have the ability to play a role as to the invite list, I think the answer is unequivocally yes. Um, obviously, the, the devil's in the details there on who exactly is going to decide and by what metrics they're going to decide uh, the invite list. Hmm. Well, it seems to me that uh, what is what would be universal recognitions of violation, significant violation of human rights, uh, dictatorships, uh, and uh, you know uh, a, a series of other elements that certainly don't live up to the democratic charter. Because if everybody can come to the meeting, and uh, and at the end of the day. Uh, not live up to the obligations, well, you know, there, there isn't uh, any association, any membership, any organization. You can't be part of NATO unless you meet certain standards, right? So uh, I, I would hope we think about that as well. I appreciate the civil society elements. Let me turn to some country-specific questions. This morning, the Foreign Relations Committee voted overwhelmingly to support my resolution expressing the Senate's support movement. Since November, in a renewed wave of civic activists, artists, and uh, uh, others in Cuba have been calling for greater freedom of expression on the island. Uh, not surprisingly, the Cuban regime has responded, as all authoritarian governments do, with harassment, 
persecution, physical attacks, and in one case, the temporary suspension of Internet service in the country to slow news of the protests. As the Cuban people demand a future of patria y vida, it's a long past time for the regime to make way for democratic aspirations of its own citizens. Ms. Olma, given your extensive experience working with democracy activists across the region, can you talk to us about the significance of the San Isidro movement, its unprecedented advances, the regime's ongoing response, and how can the international community best support uh, Cuban artists and activists clamoring for change? Thank you. As you said, recent peaceful protests by Cuban artists, journalists, civic activists calling for freedom of speech and cultural rights is the largest demonstrations on the island in the past 60 years. In this respect, the committee's strong bipartisan approval of the resolution in support of the San Isidro movement shines a key spotlight on human rights situation in Cuba and provides critical backing to Cuban activists. The first great advancement of San Isidro movement was to prevent the implementation of Decree 349, which would severely limit artistic freedoms. The San Isidro movement has awakened the desire by Cubans to enjoy the same freedoms and democratic rights as others throughout the hemisphere, including those who traditionally are not involved in promoting human rights and, and freedoms, including religious organizations and even some artists that have been perceived as being closer to the regime. One way to support Cuban activists, as I just said on the Summit of the Americas, is to invite them to the Summit of the Americas and other multilateral forums and calling on the Cuban regime to ensure that they can participate without fear of reprisal. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let me ask uh, one, one final question. In November, Nicaragua uh, will hold presidential elections. In recent months, the Ortega government and its accomplices have passed a series of laws aimed at criminalizing political activity in the country and undermining prospects for a free, fair, and transparent election. Furthermore, continuous attacks against independent media outlets in the country and a wave of human rights abuses in the interior of the country show a regime intent on intimidating its citizens in an effort to predetermine the outcome in November. Tomorrow, I'll lead a new bipartisan legislation, the Renanced Act, in the Senate that will send a clear signal about the Ortega regime's corrupt and human rights violations and define a coordinated international strategy for advancing democratic elections in Nicaragua. Can you both speak to us about the closing political space in Nicaragua and what type of steps the international community needs to take to avoid the rise of a third dictatorship in the hemisphere? Thank you. The Nicaragua legislation, I'm sure, will be welcomed by many Nicaraguenses. While Nicaragua's ongoing social political crises started in April 2018, it did not, the closing political space did not begin in 2018. It began in 2008 with the municipal elections that were documented as the most fraudulent elections in Nicaragua's history. So this has been going on for more than a decade. 2018, however, marked a dark turning point in Nicaragua's history. It resulted in more than 325 deaths at the hands of the police and paramilitary, according to numerous human rights reports. The violent repression continues today. Daniel Ortega maintains his, his power through force, blackmail, and terror. This claim, chain of repression begins 
in the communities with the military, with the police and paramilitary forces who monitor, harass, persecute citizens as they identify opponents and continues with a corrupt judiciary that fabricates evidence against political opponents and imprisons without due process. These actors have illegally enriched themselves with the protection of the regime. That is why it's important for the United States to trace their assets hidden in shell corporations and apply corresponding sanctions. The United States should also support reformist social and political leaders who are genuinely committed to the recovery of democracy in their country and who seek to unify and contest the elections, which represents the best chance for Nicaraguans to regain their freedoms. It is essential that the United States press for minimum conditions for legitimate elections in Nicaragua, including, one, the full participation of the democratic opposition without restrictions, two, transparency through national and international observers, and three, accountability at all levels of the election process. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Chairman. You have some comments, sir. Yes, Mr. Chairman, thanks so much for the, the question on, on Nicaragua, and thank you for your leadership on, on this issue. I'm extremely concerned about what I call the authoritarian architecture, which uh, the Ortega regime is currently constructing. In the last several months, uh, starting in about September or October of last year, we saw a cascade of legislation going through the National Assembly. First, it was the foreign agents law meant to basically shut down civil society. I mentioned in my opening statement the concept of authoritarian export, that law looked very similar, almost a carbon copy, to the 2012 uh, bill that uh, the Russians passed under, under Vladimir Putin to shut down civil society in that country. Uh, there was a cyber law as well, which establishes a new uh, uh, mechanism of offense as a way of, of silencing and chilling speech in the country. And then there was also the opposition, uh, the law against the, the democratic opposition in the country, which basically makes it um, uh, illegal for uh, members of... Nicaraguan society who have called for a sanctions and pressure on the Ortega government to run for and hold office um, uh, in Nicaragua. So uh, these, all of these were paired with an increase in penalties as well to include life sentences. And so the, uh, the, the amount of pressure that the Ortega regime is wielding against the democratic opposition in the country is very immense. I think, as I mentioned in my opening statement, the U.S. needs to reconsider CAFTA-DR, which I think is the ultimate cudgel um, in any sort of push to get free and fair elections there. I think as well we need to consider sanctioning the Nicaraguan military. We've done the national police last year, uh, but the military was also involved in some of the same human rights abuses uh, for which the, the national police were sanctioned as well. There's a very lucrative investment fund that goes by the acronym IPSM, I-P-S-M, um, which many of the, the high-level officials in the Nicaraguan military uh, are involved in. I know that some of the assets are exposed to the New York Stock Exchange and other elements of the United States financial system. We should go after those. Uh, if they're still uh, uh, at risk, we should uh, consider seizing them or, or sanctioning them. Uh, but when it comes to the democratic opposition, I think that we need to place an importance on uh, a legitimate organizing process, primaries, um, a process out of which there will be consensus about the candidate uh, to face uh, Ortega and his wife, Rosario Murillo, because that's the, really the lesson for me from the 1990 uh, elections that saw the, the election of Violeta Chamorro was that there was a consensus that came out of a proper organizing process 
among the opposition. Thank you. Senator Risch. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, first of all, for you, Dr. Berg, um, last month the Ortega regime proposed a measure to force Nicaraguan banks to do business with individuals facing economic sanctions. What impact uh, does this have on Nicaragua's obligations under the Dominican Republic Central America Free Trade Agreement? Thank you for the question, Senator. Uh, you're referring to the consumer protect, so-called consumer protection law, which uh, essentially forces the, uh, the the 27 or so designated individuals um, uh, on the OFAC list to be able to maintain uh, a, a bank account um, within Nicaragua. And of course, the, the danger here is that uh, Nicaragua's entire banking system uh, could be shut out of uh, of really of, of international. Uh, uh, markets and the ability of uh, Nicaraguans to both send and receive money if their connections to uh, those corresponding banks in the United States uh, is cut off because of this, uh, this consumer protection law, which really operates as a sort of blocking mechanism um, on U.S. sanctions. And so the, the consequences here are grave. We all know the importance of remittances for quite a few countries uh, in Central America. And if that connection has to be severed there to uh, corresponding banks in the United States, it could create chaos within the Nicaraguan banking system. Yeah, I, I think uh, most of us are aware of the, the remittance issues you indicated, the uh, huge part of the GDP that that makes up of those countries. Uh, and I'm assuming uh, that's going to cause some real difficulties in that regard. Is that a fair statement? It would, Senator, yes. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, for both of you, I, I think you've touched on this, but if you could delve a little deeper maybe into um, uh, what are the implications for the region uh, and, and for the hemisphere if Ortega fraudulently extends his time in office uh, after the November, by means of the November uh, 2021 elections. What do you foresee there? I'll take the, this one first if it's okay with Ms. Ulmer. Um, Look, I think that this is really the last chance that we have for something approaching free or freer and fairer elections uh, in, in Nicaragua. Um, Ms. Ulmer refers in her written statement to uh, democratic deficits uh, in Nicaragua. I would actually go uh, a step further and say we're on the precipice of a consolidated dictatorship, um, as the chairman indicated in, in some of his remarks uh, in Nicaragua. So this really is... Uh, the last chance um, that we have for freer and fairer elections. Uh, we have to get our policy right. Uh, obviously, of course, the opposition needs to do its thing um, on the ground. It needs to organize. It needs to have consensus and unity around a single candidate. Uh, but we need to do our part to make sure that there's political space um, in the country. But I can't emphasize enough, Senator, that this, in my opinion, is, is really uh, our chance, uh, our last chance, because um, a consolidated dictatorship, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, is extremely difficult uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, to break down and to uh, rebuild a, a democracy out of that. Um, and we're really on the precipice here uh, in, in Nicaragua if we see another re-election of, of Daniel Ortega and his wife. Yeah, Ms. Uh, Ms. Almer. Thank you. I would agree with everything that Dr. Berg just said. Uh, and add that the danger uh, for the hemisphere is also the increased illiberal influences that have already established themselves in Nicaragua. The Russians, as you know, 
have built uh, training, uh, counter-narcotics training, uh, and have um, uh, rumored to have trained more than 500 officials in Central America, it mirrors U.S. training for counter-narcotics in the Northern Triangle. They also have satellites based in Nicaragua that are rumored to be spying on the opposition and who knows who else in, in the hemisphere. I would say that's the real danger. Not only is it harder to roll back as we've seen in Venezuela, uh, but we have some real illiberal influences on, on our back door. Thank you much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Uh, let me thank both of our witnesses uh, for, for your testimony. And you just underscore the point about our need to pay attention to good governance issues. You mentioned transparency. You mentioned some of the statutes that we've done in regards to money laundering. And it's when you look at our hemisphere and the challenges that we confront in our hemisphere, we have a greater tradition of democratic governments, but we are very much compromised by systemic corruption that exists in so many countries that call themselves democratic countries and may have even uh, uh, free and fair elections that qualify as free and fair elections, but they're being challenged today because of the failure to confront corruption, which has led to drug trafficking, which has led to all the other issues that we're talking about today. And yes, you mentioned uh, one issue in regards to money laundering, which I would agree with you, our new, our, the statutes that we've that we've tried to confront with shell corporations, uh, very important, but we need to take a much more holistic approach. And, and that's why uh, Senator Young and I introduced legislation that this committee acted on in the last Congress that did not get to the finish line, that would est establish a process to evaluate how well countries are on a path to dealing with corruption in a way similar to how we evaluate trafficking in persons using a similar mechanism so that we have a common um, standard to put a spotlight on countries on what they need to do in order to make progress. Now, the Biden administration is talking about major investments in our hemisphere. I support that. But those investments must be founded in our values, and President Biden's been strong about this, but one of those values need to be to have a commitment, a political commitment of the leaders to deal with corruption, not to dismantle the uh, uh, anti-corruption mechanisms in your country, but to strengthen that and to have an independent judiciary and to have laws against uh, 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 laundering money and to have anti-bribery statutes. All that needs to be part of a commitment, and the United States must be in the leadership to put a focus on that. So let me just get each of your comments as to how we can really showcase U.S. leadership that can allow us to show regional leadership with commitments to fight corruption. It's okay by Dr. Berg. I'll take this one first then. Uh, in, in the Northern Triangle, uh, where we see entrenched elite uh, corruption um, that are being enriched by networks of narco-traffickers, of human traffickers, uh, we need to see the commitment of the leaders 
but also actions. And while we've been working with governments in the past, we need to pay more attention in working with reformers both inside but also outside of government. And the good news is that there have been reformists, reformist legislators, former attorney generals, uh, bodies that have been left and established by a SISIC in Guatemala or a MAXI in Honduras. Uh, and there are those individuals who have been trained uh, and are, have reform-minded um, uh, values uh, that can be supported going forward. Civil society is also forming larger networks, both at the sub-regional and national levels, to support one another. And these networks include investigative journalists, they include civil society, human rights, and anti-corruption watchdogs. It's important that the United States show commitment uh, and support not only to the government, but also to those reformists that are on outside of the government trying to rescue their democracy from narco-traffickers. Dr. Burke. Thank you for the question, uh, Senator, and, and thank you as well for the legislation uh, requiring an open reporting transparency, also a progress report um, on this very important issue. I love uh, pieces of legislation that use some of the best tools of free societies to help other uh, free societies. Um, I'm just going to say it. We have some really difficult partners in the region. And as Ms. Almer uh, mentioned, leadership is extremely necessary. Uh, and if you don't have reformers um, on the ground, we are limited in what we are able to do. And one thing I want to uh, mention here, uh, which otherwise might not get mentioned, is that I'm extremely concerned about uh, Mexico, for example, um, and about the progress uh, in that country when it comes to money laundering concerns. The gulf between what the leadership of someone like Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador promised and what it's actually delivering, I think there's a, there's a delta between that. There's a big opportunity here for this administration to push uh, the, the AMLO administration towards its rhetorical goals, uh, which is this, this fourth transformation, this, this final separation between uh, economic and political power uh, in Mexico and how money laundering and corruption is, is intertwined there is extremely important, but there's incredible blind spots uh, in this administration that need to be uh, pressured, I think, from, from the United States. Another thing I would highlight is the prosecution of malfactors. We need to make sure uh, that folks that are using uh, specifically our financial system um, and also the financial systems of the region face penalties, uh, as was mentioned by the Secretary General previously. Uh, there is a, a, a very um, large amount of impunity uh, in many countries throughout the region, uh, many times above 90%. Uh, there's asymmetrical tools that we can bring to the fore as well. We've talked about sanctions and the, the activity of, of OFAC. Um, uh, there was also the, the angle list that was passed uh, late last year, which will be another uh, tool for, uh, for naming and shaming and, and, and blocking travel. Uh, but this is incredibly technical work, as Ms. Almer mentioned. You have to work with attorneys general. You have to work with uh, civil society on the ground. And uh, it's, not the, it's not the big sort of visionary stuff. Uh, it's highly technical, but it's really, uh, in many ways, what makes the difference uh, for the quality of life and the quality of democracy uh, in the region. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Senator Kane, and uh, may I ask you, Senator Kane, to close out our hearing? I have an immigration hearing, a meeting that I, I need to go to. So if you would do that. 
absolutely. You're, you're the last you, member to be recognized unless Senator Rich has more no, questions. I'm, I'm okay. Great. Th thank you to all. And, um, and there's also a vote on the I'm, floor. I'm, so you'll yes, see, you'll see us Kane, race off. Senator Kane, I'm sorry. I misspoke. Uh, I understand Senator Van Hollen is available virtually, so after you, if you would recognize him. Oh, I will. No, thank you. Um, I'm going to just ask two questions, and I'll let one of you tackle one and one of you tackle the other. So here are my two questions. One, uh, what can we do to promote more press freedom in the region? The um, Reporters Without Borders say that Mexico and Honduras are two of the top four nations in the world in the number of journalists killed, so we're not even talking censorship or imprisonment. We're talking the murder of journalists. Uh, and there are other nations in the hemisphere that have significant challenges as well. So what can we do from the vantage point of this committee or the Senate to promote press freedom in the region? And the second, I'll make a self-critical point, and it's this. Um, this is my region of the world that I'm most interested in. I love being on this committee for that reason. But I find myself almost always talking about um, North America, Central America, South America, and seldom about the Caribbean. And I would, I'll just be self-critical about that. I don't really focus on Caribbean issues. Of course, we've had many discussions about Cuba, but other than that, um, we, we don't do an awful lot in the committee about the Caribbean. And so maybe one of you could address what we could do to promote press freedom in the region, and the other maybe could address what are some opportunities that we might have on relationship building in the Caribbean. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so for press freedom, uh, protection, protection of journalists. Uh, I would say protection of all reform-minded uh, uh, persons working within government and outside of government is really, you know, number one to ensure uh, that they are safe in what they're doing. That in includes uh, providing security training, providing uh, cyber security training, uh, and unfortunately sometimes uh, protecting them as witnesses as they're trying to get their information out. Many times the journalists will now pair up with international journalists on important corruption events to protect their lives, so that's important. And another area to work on uh, with, with press freedom is the disinformation. As you know, that's a, there's a... Prov prevalence of disinformation. And so nowadays, NDI and other organizations like ours are working with electoral authorities and other government officials with, uh, with Facebook, with, um, with Microsoft, with uh, Twitter, uh, on how to detect disinformation and to combat it. Uh, specifically, we've been dealing with disinformation against violence against women political candidates in countries like Colombia, Mexico, Ecuador, and El Salvador. So I think those are important initiatives. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Ms. Olmer. And on the Caribbean, what, how about some ideas? Yes. Uh, thank you, Senator, very much for the question on the, on the Caribbean. I think this goes back to what I said in my opening statement about, uh, about vision. Um, sometimes the Charter has failed to play that wider visionary uh, role that we hoped it would play. Um, and I, I hope that the United States government and this administration uh, will think about the Caribbean as an integral part uh, of this community because um, I agree with you 100%, Senator. I'm someone who works on these issues every day. Um, and I, too, oftentimes find myself uh, neglecting uh, the Caribbean from time to time. I think there's an opportunity for us to, uh, to, to roll out a Caribbean basin-type program uh, a serious uh, engagement with the region, uh, a capital infusion 
um, in DFC and, and a, rather a 35% requirement for DFC to lend to the Americas as well as a capital infusion in the Inter-American Development Bank uh, could beef up our support and engagement uh, in the region. But whenever I meet with uh, Caribbean uh, members of the Caribbean diaspora and also um, uh, Caribbean delegations here in Washington, there's a real thirst for more U.S. engagement. I, I, I think they do feel uh, that, that neglect uh, that I mentioned as, as not being fully part uh, of the region, which, of course, they absolutely are. Um, and I'm also and, and just parenthetically, then that can create challenges because when we go to Caribbean nations to talk about, hey, can you support us dealing you know, with Venezuelan sanctions or something like that, if they feel like we've kind of left them out of a dialogue, and we're normally not paying attention to the Americas anyway, but if we pay even less attention to the Caribbean, then when we go with an ask, I mean, it's a lot harder to get an answer that we like. That's right, uh, uh, Senator. So I, I think, you know, one, one last thing I was going to say is uh, I'm very thankful that the Secretary General mentioned uh, the Caribbean as, as our third border. I believe that's the, the language that he used uh, about it. And, and I hope that the administration uh, will uh, begin to think about uh, vaccines as a, a, a critical form of, of our engagement. Again, this is not only um, a matter of, of soft power and influence, but it's also a matter of public health uh, and public safety. Thank, Thank you very much for both. And I now recognize by Senate Webex, uh, Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Senator Kane, and thank you to both our, our witnesses. And let me just start by saying I, I share the concerns that were raised and expressed uh, about the situation in, in Venezuela, situation in Nicaragua with both those uh, regimes. Uh, my question relates uh, to the largest democracy uh, in Latin America, Brazil. Um, and some of the threats we've seen to democratic and independent uh, institutions uh, in the country from President uh, Bolsonaro. And I wanted to see if you would comment uh, on what, what you think uh, about the stresses being placed on democracy in Brazil and whether the United States uh, should be doing something uh, about it. Why don't we start with um, Ms. Ulmer? Thank you, Senator. It is concerning uh, what is happening in Brazil, uh, and particularly the, the rhetoric. Uh, Brazil, as you know, represents one of the largest democracies in the hemisphere. And the rule of law, uh, protection of the environment uh, with the Amazons, and now even with uh, COVID-19 and restrictions that have been placed on the population uh, and then lifted rapidly uh, and disinformation surrounding COVID in Brazil are all concerning. Uh, democracy is fragile in Latin America and uh, when you have the largest democracies uh, backslide uh, and their future looking grim uh, these are all very concerning trends. And the U.S. should probably focus more uh, in helping look to uh, issues of democratic governance in terms of the environment and other issues that affect the hemisphere uh, and engage in that regard. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Burke, do you share those uh, concerns? Thank you for the question about uh, Brazil, uh, Senator. I, I um, 
have watched as a, a, a Brazil expert and also a, a person who spent uh, uh, more than two years of my life living in the wonderful country of, of Brazil. I spent a lot of my time watching uh, the country, uh, paying attention to President uh, Jair Bolsonaro and what he's doing. Um, I think that there are, um, on some levels, uh, threats to uh, the, the, the democratic institutions in the country. Uh, but in my opening remarks, I sketched out or adumbrated what I thought were consolidated democracies, backsliding and straining democracies, highly imperfect democracies, and consolidated dictatorships in the region. And I will note that, that Brazil uh, falls somewhere between the consolidated democracies and, uh, and backsliding democracies. But I, for one, think that Brazil has incredibly strong institutions. Um, and I will point you to uh, the, the, the anti-corruption um, investigation called Operation Lava Jato or Operation Car Wash, which actually led to or contributed quite a bit to the electoral environment, which gave us a president like Jair Bolsonaro, um, as an example of uh, the way in which institutions in Brazil are incredibly strong. Compare that, for example, to Central America, uh, where there was an exogenous imposition of a, uh, an anti-corruption body like the CICIG, uh, Brazil was able to do this domestically with its institutions, um, a, a very wide-ranging anti-corruption probe which brought more than 200 high-level individuals in the political sphere uh, uh, to trial uh, for uh, systemic corruption. So I think that there is um, an element to this where Brazil's institutions are quite strong, even if they're being uh, strained. In terms of our relationship with Brazil, I think we need to widen the aperture of our engagement. Um, I think major non-NATO ally status, which was uh, accorded to Brazil in 2019, is a major opportunity for us uh, to engage on the defense cooperation level. But if you're looking for areas of leverage, Senator, to be able to ludge, nudge the Bolsonaro administration uh, into, into more de democratic and productive directions, look, Brazil is always looking for its status um, as an emerging power uh, on the global scene. Right now, one of the most important goals uh, for Brazil is OECD membership. And so that would be a critical space, I think, for the United States to exert some amount of leverage uh, if it is so looking uh, to do so with the, with the Bolsonaro administration. I, I appreciate that suggestion and um, may follow up uh, with you on it. Uh, thank you to... Um, both our witnesses. Um, I think that concludes our hearing and the record will be open until tomorrow close of business uh, for questions uh, for the record. Uh, thank you both um, and the hearing is adjourned.